This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you by Wowzy in St Andrew Street, your local independent family business offering an unrivaled choice for your sweet tooth needs. Wowzy are on the ball with their huge selection of snacks, including Takis, Cheetos and Lay's. You just can't lose with Aberdeen's largest choice of pick and mix with all your retro favourites, good old-fashioned sweets including AFC Rock and exclusive stand-free lollipops. It's fine and dandy at Wowsy. Shop online at www.wowsy.com. It's Wednesday and you know what that means. Welcome to episode 26 of the ABZ Football Podcast. I'm Gary Scott. Joining me this week, as always, it's Gavin Baxter and a welcome return for Graham Steele. Gents, how's it going? Good, thank you. Very good, thank you. It's been a strange week all around, both in football and elsewhere in the world. So yeah, had a lot to digest. But yeah, good. Happy to be here. And joining us this week for his second appearance, it's Tom Watt. Tom, welcome back. How are things? Good, good. Thanks for having me having me back on again. Obviously, didn't make too much of a mess of the debut. Um, second second run out. No, good. Thanks for having us. And like it was just said before we started, one one away now from that magical hat trick. One ball. from the hat trick. Yeah. We'll see if we get that sorted out soon enough. I'll try. I'll try not to make any obvious mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and listen, in a week that saw John Hughes go full Mark McGee. <laughs> by declaring a 5-0 hammering by lunatic Dugamere's Greenick Mortonside was this might be the best thing that could have happened to us. And ex-Don Anthony O'Connor put Morecambe 1-0 up at Tottenham Hotspur before marshalling a defence, including other ex-Dons, Ryan McLaughlin and Greg Lee to frustrating Spurs for 75 minutes to the point they had to bring Harry Kane and Lucas Moura off the bench. It's another busy episode this week. Um, we're going to try and keep it under three and a half hours that last week's show ran to because, you know, that's just probably a bit self-indulgent, but never mind. Is it worth mentioning as well that Sam Cosgrove was at Anfield today and he didn't have to buy a ticket? <laughs> Good on him. <laughs> Good on him. Um, in the first half, it's part three of our mid-season review. And this week under the spotlight, it's the manager, Stephen Glass, as we take some time to analyse his performance so far this season before we bring you our preview of our rearranged home fixture against Newcoe Rangers next Tuesday night as the winter break comes to a screeching halt and the Premiership returns. We'll take our usual look at our loanies and loan watch and preview the women's team as they return to SWPL1 action. And after the break, we're delighted to continue our series of exclusive interviews with Don's personalities of past and present as we bring you our in-depth conversation with a man who made a fantastic impression on the Red Army. It's Michael Hector. But first... Over the last couple of episodes, we've spent some time analysing our summer recruitment, looking at our overall squad and where we think our new recruitment setup needs to spend some time focusing in this January window. And this week, under the spotlight, we're going to take some time to provide our thoughts on how manager Stephen Glass has performed so far this season. And I feel it's almost fitting that actually, Tom, you're back because the last time you were on the show was in the aftermath of that Dundee debacle, where I think a lot of us on the on on the show that week weren't even sure if Stephen Glass was still being situ come the start of 2022 yeah it was it was a pretty dark day I mean I think um 
I, I was definitely one of the voices saying I just I didn't think he was up to it. Didn't think I didn't think I could see a way of of getting it with the run of fixtures that was coming after that. Um, I didn't see how there was any way back, and it was going to be a case of doing something to avoid a relegation fight rather than you know making a more progressive move. I think it's fair to say we've seen enough since then that that was very harsh and slightly knee-jerk knee-jerk judgment and um i would like to issue somewhat of an apology not that much of an apology i still reserve the right to uh, to say that i think you know there, not, not everything's gone right since either but there are more signs that maybe it's not a complete disaster yet i i think in summary i've not seen enough to to decide it's a disaster i've seen enough to say that i was probably a bit harsh a couple of months like a couple of months back and before we get into the conversation of full, let's just put the data on display. Because again, that night was the night that the infamous data chat from Big DC happened on BBC Sports End. Yeah, Gav. Dave must have some kind of like hankering, some kind of spidey <laughs> sense that Tom Watt's coming on our show. <laughs> I know, I know. Just a couple of hours ago, he decided to get on Twitter and uh, be a little bit confrontational about things. But yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, he's hit the Ryoka hard early doors today in uh, Atlanta, I think. But... Let's just put some of the data on display because I think it's always fair to do it. Now, for the purposes of this discussion, I'm disregarding Glass's initial six games when he came in at the back end of last season. I just don't think it's particularly valid for any any purpose of looking at it just now. So as we stand right now, Glass's record this season reads, played 27 in all competitions, 111. That's a win percentage of 40.7%. Goals for 37. Goals against 36. Now, in the league, it's played 20, 1-8 drops the win percentage down to 40% dead on. Goals for 25, goals against 24. And as a reminder, to set some sort of context and boundaries on the discussion, when he was appointed on the 23rd of March, the club's own press release stated that Stephen's experience in management would align with the club's own overarching coaching and playing philosophy to, quote, inspire our supporters with an exciting brand of football with homegrown talent at its core, competing and winning at the highest level possible. And then Big DC stating that his winning mentality means that he was the outstanding candidate for the role. He's committed to an exciting attacking style of football, maximizing the right balance between experienced players and developing and playing young first team players. So that's the data. That's the context of why he was appointed. Gents, your kind of initial view, I think we've got enough of a, a sample size now having watched the team for the last six months. What's your view about how Stephen Glass is doing? Just on a more general level just now, we can we can go into a bit more of a deep dive in certain areas, I guess, in a minute. I, I think just in a very kind of brief summary, I think he is learning. Um, I don't think, and that's a that's a not entirely a compliment because I still feel I would have rather have had somebody who didn't need to learn coming in. But I think in his to to his credit, he's learning. Um, he has tightened up the defence. They are they're, they're the slightly inconsistent attack is slightly less inconsistent than it was before. They did have, you know, he did have horrendous injury problems in that that run of whatever, you know, 10, 11 games in League and Cup without winning anything. But there are some signs that he's able to be a little bit more tactically flexible without it be always being reactive, that he's maybe imposed the will of a team of the team on the opposition rather than just kind of seeing what's what's there and, and, and tweaking here and there. Um I think, yeah, I think a couple of months in, so six months in proper into the reign, he is learning 
Um, he's learning quite fast. Hopefully he's learning fast enough. Yeah, I think I would pretty much agree with all that. I was just going to say, when you look at the statistics you quoted just a minute ago, it's sort of interesting to see, although they reflect the 20 games to date, it kind of feels like if you were to sort of weight them in some way, it's got a little bit better. You know, the, the last few games in terms of we've not been shipping as many goals and the daft goals and, you know, we gave Sitman a bit of a pace and we've been scoring goals. So it does feel like things have got a little bit better. I think overall, it's kind of a bit meh where we're, where we're sitting and out the League Cup was disappointing. But I think there's enough there to say we were probably all a little bit guilty of, you know, and you get battered by Dundee away from home, everyone's going to be fed up. But I think there's enough to say that it was the right call not to do anything daft from the board. And there is enough to suggest that in the second half of the season, it doesn't actually seem all that unrealistic that we might actually finish in a sensible position in the league when you just look at how bunched up it is. I think I'll mostly echo those sentiments. Um, If I put myself in the shoes of Dave Cormack or Steve Gunn or whoever makes the decision at the end of the season because Stephen Glass is on a rolling contract, of course. So at this moment, would I be saying categorically, is he the man to take us forward? Still undecided. I would call it to date, taking everything into account, maybe a C minus so far. We're probably all agreed on the sense, I guess, that it's still a bit early to really tell really whether this is going to be something that's going to work out in the long run for Aberdeen Football Club or not. But certainly I don't think any of us are now fearing what we were on um, the 18th of October that, that night, where there was a real possibility and a real feeling, I think, about not just amongst us, about a lot of people, that we could be very, very easily dragged into a, a proper relegation scrap. And the signs were there that this was not a side that you would bank on to get you out of a relegation scrap the Dundee performance in particular was a very very disappointing one because we were outfought outthought and just bullied basically through that game and there was no real fight or dig or anything about the team in that night and so it was understandable that a lot of people um, kind of knee-jerked a little bit from that perspective but credit I think to the board and in, in, in the sense that they kind of stuck with it they've decided they're going to keep with it we've spoken about this a lot on the podcast already. I think we even spoke about that night actually was about how our summer recruitment had gone and how many of those players were A, Stephen Glass's players, how many of them were their kind of right fit for the, what we were trying to do, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, we, we all spoke about the fact that we felt that the 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 policy of appointing a head of recruitment effectively after your director of football and your manager had been appointed was kind of arse about tit. And we're probably, you know, I think we're, we're starting to see the fallout from that. That's Austin Samuels, Matty Longstaff who've, who've, who've been sent back obviously there was a lot of conjecture today about Terry Jenks which is what the chairman's come out to kind of um, to rubbish you know we're already seeing signs that the, the summer recruitment wasn't right and they're wanting to do something about that in January if they can it's interesting I mean it feels to me that in more recent weeks it feels to me like he's certainly because injuries forced the hand a little bit for a big chunk of the season so far that we're starting to settle on what I think the manager believes is his best 11 and the best formation to set his 11 up in which is the 4-2-3-1 which was favored by his predecessor as well and it seems as though it's a very settled 11 he's got in his mind now and I think that's probably helping with the level of consistency of the results too I think on that note as well one thing he's going to have to contend with is the situation with Ryan Hedges it seems most likely that he will be leaving probably before the Rangers game given all the chat about Blackburn Rovers interest and how does he go about recovering from losing his best players? Yeah, I, I mean, I think now that he's, like you say, there, there does seem to be a sort of favoured, settled formation. I'm not 
totally sure that we've got the squad to... Like, we, I, I think we cast the net quite wide in the summer um, and had a lot of... Looked like we had a couple, a lot of options and an, an awful lot of dif- different flexibility in terms of the the setup. Now we look like we've got the four two three one. We've got a kind of variation on a three, sort of three four two one, if if necessary, um, as a as a plan B. But I don't think we've necessarily got the squad to make those formations really sing yet. I yeah. think that th- those those are the best options that we've got, but we are still putting square pegs and round holes to make those work, even with everybody fit. Um, so I think there, I, I think it, it, on one hand you can criticise, uh, and we rightly, we, we should, that the, the recruitment in the summer wasn't, wasn't good enough. Um, a lot of them were punts that just didn't, haven't haven't come off and that's always going to be the case a lot of them were players we were you know long staff in particular I, I, I thought it was a fantastic bit of business terrible terrible bit of business but and I don't think anyone could have foreseen that and there are another couple who I think are probably were a, a bit of a shot in the dark see what they were see what they're like and players like like Jack Gurr who I wouldn't be at all surprised if they're moved on in January just because they obviously weren't at the level level required. So on one hand, I think it's absolutely right to criticise, but I think if the if this month is a case of kind of we we've we've now got evidence that this didn't necessarily work, we're going to go back and maybe retrace our steps a bit and and be a bit more collaborative and look at how the team's playing and look at the options with their head of recruitment and the the whole backroom staff then that would be a little bit more progressive. I think it, um, Dave Cormack su- has suggested that they're looking for more attacking threats. I think it's fairly safe to say Hedges won't be here. Um, whether it means, whether any transfer fee for him means we could push on with like Jamie McGrath, who's a very different sort of player, um, but a very, very good player. And I think probably um, we would ha- if it was a case of him coming in and Hedges going out and nothing else happens, I think overall the squad's probably stronger. Um, but I think th- there's a bit of surgery needed yet. Yeah, and there's big talk as well about the fact that Marley Watkins might be out for the rest of the season. Um, that's been rumoured for the last few days now online. I know Gav, that last week I think there was indications he'd be fit for the Rangers game, but certainly there seems to be a lot of strong, strong indications he's out for the rest of the season. So that'll probably force our hand as well. We'll have to do something in the attacking side of the, or the attacking third even especially if Hedges do go because Hedges and Watkins have been effectively our ball carriers between midfield and, and attack for, for 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 most of the last last third of the, the of the first half of the season yeah of course so there's been nothing official from the club regarding no, that um, no, although not, Dave Cormack has also not moved to dismiss it so <laughs> yeah take what you will from that but it's interesting because I, I I'm not convinced that the 4-2-3-1 setup is actually the right setup for the squad we have either. I, I've said it on a number of occasions already this season so far that I don't think Ramirez is a out-and-out number nine by himself. I think he needs somebody closer to him to support him. Um, I think we played our best football season during that run where we switched to a three, where we kind of had to do it at the back. And we had Watkins playing much, much closer to um, Ramirez. And we also saw even in the Hecking game at the start of the season where Jet was playing very, very close to Ramirez as well, that he needs somebody there to do some of the donkey work for him. I'm not convinced the 4-2-3-1 is the right setup for us, but it seems to be the one we've settled on. There's maybe just an element of defining how Aberdeen are going to play, and then we will work around that, if that makes sense. I, mean, I know obviously he has a he has a squad of players at the moment, but if he's decided that 
there's now a way that he wants to play. Maybe we'll see some of that squad come and go. You know, so he's gonna he's gonna fit a squad to a system rather than fit a system to a squad. Because I don't necessarily disagree with you. Certainly on the Ramirez point, I like Ramirez. I think he's done really quite well for us, but I just don't see a future for him as the the one up front. He's much more effective when he's got someone with him. And on that basis, you're you've got what I think is a pretty decent player, but it can you're you're not really setting him up to succeed. So it's a little bit I, I do agree with you. It's a little bit strange to see that can I could guess just because I see something doesn't mean it's real or the manager doesn't see it, but it does seem a bit odd in that particular circumstance that there's a guy who looks capable with support. So why would you not give him the support? I could see it more working with Ramirez if we were kind of a bit like 13, 14, 15, 16 era Derek McInnes side where you had two out and out wingers in a McGinn and a Hayes who were flinging balls in the box for a guy basically just to get on the end of who doesn't have to do much work other than in the penalty box between the width of the goal frame. Yeah, if you had a time machine and we could get old Hayes and old McGinn back, you're right. I think I'd be quite content saying we will get good service into the box and I feel like that's where Ramirez does his best work. But you're right, we don't have that. And the only element we've kind of got of that is Hedges and probably fair to say that, okay, it doesn't really get balls in the box. I feel like he's the guy that can sort of do that linking piece and maybe link up with him and play something, yeah. take him out of the equation. And if Watkins is indeed unavailable for well, basically any period of time, he's pretty isolated. And then he drops deep and he puts in a shift and he runs around. But then it does mean if we do, say we do get a turnover of possession in midfield, you can't really break in anyone because he's back on a halfway line where he's been to just play a simple one-two. It's not what he should be. Lack of faith in 2022 Niall McGinn here is shocking. <laughs> I mean, for me, the, the, there's a real issue with lack of width actually further up the park with the way we play at the moment because both Hedges, both Watkins, even, I mean, Jets played on the right-hand side with three on a couple of occasions as well. These guys are not bombing up the wing and flinging balls in the box. They're all Hedges, Watkins, they're always looking to cut inside and come inside. They're not ever looking to get up, up the line, hit the byline and throw a cross in the box. If I see Jet tearing up the, the wing and hitting the byline, I'll be amazed this season. I'll buy a T-shirt for that alone, let alone if he scores a goal. You know it's time to put your poisoned beer back because that's just not going to be... Yeah. I was going to say, the only guy that did get beyond, we've just returned to Wolves. That's true, but you wouldn't want to get your head on one of his crosses. No, no, so no. Yeah, it would, yeah, it would take <laughs> off your neck, but still, he was. I think he's the only guy that I can think of that actually did pretty much every time. Yeah. Now, I know I had mixed results, but the point being, there was your option to put the ball down the line, a guy who was quick, and sometimes the way it goes in Scotland, if you just get the ball in the box, that's enough to cause a bit of chaos. It's not always necessarily got to be the best delivery, but now we don't even have that. I appreciate there's a window here, so maybe we will get that in the next couple of weeks, and this will be a moot point. But as it stands, yeah, anyone who does notionally play it wide is inevitably going to end up crowding out your forwards. There, there are three, to to uh, use a, a inevitable Evening Express cliche, there are three players that have been out for a while who will, or have been in and out for a while, who will be back soon-ish, who will be like new signings, and they may or may not, I don't know, they may or may not feature, but they're certainly interesting propositions for the rest of the season and how we set up. If Andrew Considine's coming back in the next, he's now back in full training, it looks like from, from his Instagram, he's now running again. Um, you would expect him to be at least part of like bounce games and things in the next sort of six weeks or so. If he, you would assume him 
Ross McCrory and David Bates as a back three seems fairly viable. Um, Dylan McGeoch, who's just never managed, like every time he's had three games in a row, I've thought there's a really good player there and he fits the glass system. He does all the things that you'd want from a kind of industrial, uh, industrious midfielder, but he just can never manage to stay fit. Um, And the other, Matty, Matty Kennedy, who I think everyone assumed was heading out in the summer. I think he's actually been injured long term. Um, he may or may not feature, but I think whether he stays um, and it, like it, he, he probably he is the one kind of in the prime of his career who's a, a natural wide player. We've not seen anything like the player that he was at St Johnson or the, the sort of player that got that, that's forced his way into the Northern Ireland team. Um, but nominally he's got that but I think whether he stays and fights his way into the team and gives us that option there or he moves on and frees up some wages then I think that's kind of a pivotal player one way or another yeah it's interesting to know that there is that chat that he has been basically carrying an injury the entire time he's been here Uh so then you wonder well okay clean slate and all that but then you just wonder is there maybe just too much water under the bridge for him to have a successful time at Aberdeen I'm not sure Hopefully, though, when Dave Cormack's talking about targeting creativity, that's specifically what they're referring to. Wide players, pacey players, guys who can get the ball in the box. My view is that 4-2-3-1 is the best way to go. That's purely because that's how I would set up a team. I think it gives you enough. I think it gives the most options for both defense and attack. There's no reason that Ramirez should be isolated on a 4-2-3-1 system if we've got the right three in behind him. I completely agree with that. I think the problem is so far this season, we've just not seen it enough and we've been relying so heavily. I go back to the conversation we all had on the after Dundee game. We were so heavily relying on Calvin Ramsey and Jack McKenzie to provide width and to provide, you know, balls into the box from wide areas. And it was two young lads making their way in the game. And it's like, this is so much to ask of them, especially to then be doing all the tracking back as well on top of that. And I just fear that with, it depends on how Glass does see it. Does he see his three as being guys who actually do want to come inside all the time? Or does he want them to play as as wingers, the, the, the guys on the outside? It's not clear to me really how he wants to sit up there. I know because of circumstance, we've ended up the way we are at the moment, where none of the, none of the three look like they want to play that way. But is that the way the manager actually wants us to play? I think despite all the chat about his philosophy being part of the reason as to why he was recruited, I think Tom's right. I think he's learning how he wants his team yeah. to play. And that comes into it. I, I think probably part of the reason we moved back to the 4-2-3-1 again was probably to try and tighten things up more than anything else. I think it was to try and provide a solid base and then move from there. And it's kind of worked, in fairness. You look you look to the point at which we switched back to that. We've only conceded... Um, I'm, I'm looking at it now. I think we've only conceded eight, eight goals in that period, which is eight games worth. So it's still not great, a goal a game, obviously, but it's better than where we were. After that Dundee game, for example, where we were just every time a team came at us, it looked, we looked like we were going to concede a goal. Um, but it's been interesting from that perspective. And I guess you can almost divide the season up into kind of three segments, I feel. There was like that kind of like really real early season promise with the European ties and then the United home game, Livingston away, we were fortunate in. Then the kind of Wraith game going out of Europe seemed to really affect us. We got a good result. Um, obviously at Tynecastle off the back of the first leg away in Baku but after that that's when the wheels just came off until mid-October and then you've got that period after the Dundee game where we had that fine run of the three games the Hibs Rangers Hearts games and then it's been a bit 
streaky. We, we lost three on the spin to, to, to Motherwell United and then Celtic away. And then, you know, we've gone, what was it, four wins out of the last five before we went to the winter break. So it feels to me that the season's been very much divided into those three segments. And it feels as though it's almost like you say, it's like the manager, I think, came in with this idea that we're going to play like this. And that was the kind of early season promise where we were doing quite well. Then it hit the skids and it was like, he didn't almost know what to kind of do from... That's how it kind of appeared almost. Was like we, we seemed a bit clueless, to be to be frank, which I think is why we were so knee-jerk after the Dundee game. I don't think it was knee-jerk because I think it was a culmination of many, many weeks. It wasn't like one off, a one-off result. And it just seemed like we were conceding the same goals week in, week out. And there did not appear to be a, a way of correcting that. Thankfully, there was. But yeah, I don't think it was knee-jerk at all. No, I, I would do that. I think we were... Like I, I roll back the criticism for like demanding his demanding glasses removed. I think that was you know that was knee jerk. But I think the criticism yeah. and the even the I think even recent results have coloured the season more than they should. Because I mean we're, we're we're in sixth position. In theory, it's not it's not been a disastrous first half of the season. It's not been. But those the, the the four wins in the last five games have really coloured it. But it's a weak division this season. I mean, we we have had some very very bad results. We've lost to St Johnston, um, lost twice to Motherwell. We've lost to St Mirren. We've lost to Dundee. You know, they, they, like these are bad teams this season. They, they are not Motherwell. Motherwell being the exception, who they're they're well punching well above their weight and have surprised everyone. Those other teams have not. They are they are not good sides. Um, you know struggled to get a point at, at Ross County. So I think uh, against Ross County, sorry. Um so I think the 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 point that I think it's fair to say that you know the kind of as as a grade, a kind of a C, a C minus seems, you know, kind of fine. And we're sixth and we've got we're within touching distance of the European uh, spots. And a bit, you know, if we if we keep on the run of form, anything like the run of form that we came out of the sort of enforced break, um when we come back, then you know, we'll be all right this season. But I don't think that should mask the fact that for large parts of the season, we have not been good. The the uh, Even at the point of the Dundee game, you know, we were incredibly lucky to have that second. I, I take the point to some extent about the, the, the dominance of possession and the amount of chances that we had and all of that that, that, that Cormac said. But at the same time, we were incredibly lucky to have beaten Livingston. Like, that should not yeah. have happened. Yeah. Um, so we, we were probably ahead on or roughly about overall the amount of points that we give or take that, that we should have been on. So I think I, I don't want to get, I, I don't, I would like to underline the fact that yes, we were knee jerk to say, you know, there's no way back after the Dundee game, but I wouldn't want to say that it was like completely unwarranted criticism and everything's rosy now and it's the only way is up. I, I still think there's a lot of question marks and even we're only beginning to have fewer questions than we've got answers now. Absolutely. One thing that we've not maybe touched on a lot, we'll come back to the performances on the field in a minute, but just in terms of the manager off the field and how he's handled certain situations, certain scenarios. I mean, in fairness to him, we spoke about, he's a, he's a rookie manager at this level. He's had a lot thrown at him um, this season. Um, you know, the, the press have been, it's fair to say, not exactly in favour of his appointment for whatever reason. He's viewed as being an outsider, I think. So he's certainly had a lot more focus on him, I think, than some other managers in the league. I'm looking at Tam Courts, for example, right now, who's in a very similar situation. The run that United are on at the moment is, is horrendous. Calm Davidson's got 
you know, credit in the bank because he took St. Johnson to two cup, uh, two cup winners last season. Um, but there are guys in there who, who, who've been struggling and don't seem to have attracted the same level of criticism as Stephen Glass has this season. But on top of that as well, he had the Dundee game where there were, it wasn't just a minority of, of people in the ground at, at Dens that night chatting about him getting sacked in the morning and all that kind of stuff. He's had to deal with that, which is clearly not a, something that's going to be very easy to deal with. He's had to deal with the Funzo Ojo incident at Dundee United. We've had to deal with some questionable refereeing, it's fair to say, against us in certain parts of the, the season. And there's been issues, there's been areas as well in press conferences and stuff where he's been quite prickly, I think, um, and, and maybe said things that I don't know if he necessarily, you know, looking back, would have wanted to say. I'm looking at, like, the Matty Longstaff comments, for example, where, like, what was it again? He said that someone questioned about Matty Longstaff wanting to play games, and he said, well, Matty obviously wants to play more games, but we were obviously looking for better performances. And it just felt like it was a very, not flippant, it was a very off-the-cuff remark, but you look and go, from a man-management perspective, it's the kind of thing Jose Mourinho or Neil Lennon says. Yeah, potentially. Um, just on that side of things, how do we think he's doing? It's, it's a it's a pressurized situation, the Aberdeen hot seat. Everyone knows that. It's a difficult one for a rookie manager to come in with no experience of this. I'm just intrigued to see what you guys think about that. I think largely he's done okay. I think he handled the I think he handled the pressure and the questions he was getting about the performances fairly well I think he handled the I mean he, he handled Dave Cormack going on sports and 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 not exactly helping the the pressure I mean ultimately it it, it doesn't seem to have hurt him at all um and and he, as he was entitled to do to go and fight fight his corner but certainly at the time it felt like that was only going to intensify the pressure I think he handled that quite well but like you think like you say there's been a couple of comments that were at best unguarded or at worst unguarded at, at best just a little um disrespectful i think the 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 long staff situation for i mean he has been a pretty much an unmitigated disaster as a signing as signings go in ter- not just in terms of how bad he's been on the pitch but the expectation that you know the 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 level that he was coming to and what he'd be able to bring the, to the team but i also think he, like he didn't do particularly well initially with the questions around Ojo when he was sent off. And I think like it was like day two when he actually got around to saying, I think his initial his initial response was something along the lines of, you know, he does feel like he's let his teammates down a little bit. Yeah. And it, it, on day two, it was like, no, that was ridiculous. We've got to be able to be safe and surround the sort of thing he should have said in the, off the bat. And it may well be that that is exactly what Ojo said. And, and he said, you know, I hold my hands up. I shouldn't have gone. And, but, that was not the that was not what everyone around the world and everyone around the world saw that it was it, it was ridiculous uh, a ridiculous bit of refereeing and um and should have been more heavily scrutinized I, I think he's done well with the pressure i think where he needs a bit of help or or a bit of polish is in diplomacy um see i i tend to disagree with this about him getting overly scrutinized by the media i think the most the bulk of his pressure has come from the Aberdeen support, not from the actual media itself. I had not really seen anything that I've deemed to be overly unfair coming from the press, but that's by the by. Um, well, I guess I would counter that one, Gab was saying, has there been a BBC Sports Sound you know, evening dedicated to talking about Tam Courts and Dundee United in crisis? Aberdeen are a bigger deal than Dundee United. Well, that's absolutely a fair point. But... Well, joke, jokes aside, not to pick on Dundee United, 
any Aberdeen manager is going to get more scrutiny, especially the way things were going at the time. I think that's just that's just part of the part and parcel of the job. And is that the night that Dave Cormack then went on Sports Sound? That was that night, yeah. So yeah. that was probably you know queued up for them by Dave Cormack then giving them the phone and saying I want to appear on there. Uh, no, in fairness, actually, I'm, I think actually it was the other way around. I think Sports Sound had given the heads up they were going to run this, and they were, they asked for somebody from the club to go on. Well, again, I guess we come down to what Graham just said. That what was it unfair to say we were in a stump, something of a state of crisis at that time? You know, we were we were feeling it ourselves. So I, I'm not saying we weren't. I'm just saying it's it's about whether or not it's a. But Graham's right. It's a, it's it's a high pressure job. That's why he that's what he signed job. up for. So he can't yeah. really go around complaining about that. No, I and, the, and the bulk of his scrutiny has come from the fact that the people in the news will see the feeling amongst the Aberdeen support and they will hear the feeling amongst the Aberdeen support. I think that's more reflective of that. Yeah. When it comes to Stephen Glass off the pitch, um, when I hear him talk, he carries the kind of energy of that guy at the pub that like <laughs> is, is sound most of the time but could flip at any moment. Something very yeah. threatening about him. Um, so he's quite brash, I think it's, it's fair to say. He's quite... Um, there can be an underlying feeling of sort of an aggression about him. Um Oh no! I guess he's done okay. I still stand by my thought that he let both the club and Fonzojo down with his behaviour and his comments after the United game. I think anything, anything apart from unequivocal support was not good enough, and he did not provide that. In recent times, yeah, it's been. I've got. I've had nothing to say. I think, yeah, he's still, as I say, learning. I think he could use some, uh, some improvement though in his man management and the way that he picks his words. I think, I don't know if any of you guys have watched that there's a Red TV segment with him that came out either before Christmas or between Christmas and New Year with him and Rob McLean sitting down and they kind of talk about the first six months. And they kind of touch upon this a little bit. And, and Glass actually admits in it, he's quite open with it, that actually he said some things that in the heat of the moment he now regrets saying and he, he doesn't think he dealt with it properly. And it's very, it's, it, for me, actually, it was quite refreshing to see a guy who's actually willing to almost admit, I'm learning on the job, basically you know what, I, I got that wrong. I didn't maybe answer that question the way I should have done. And he's kind of learning not just how to manage a team or how to set up a team or, or how to deal with an opposition threat in a particular manner. He's having to deal with the whole gambit. And as you guys have all just touched on, the Aberdeen job is the, it's the third biggest job in the country. It's a high-profile, high-pressure job, especially amongst our support, who, let's let's not try and pretend otherwise, are a very demanding fan base. Um, at the best of times and, and I think on, on the whole I think he's actually done okay there's been definitely some areas where where it wasn't great the, the Osho incident is the one that jumps out straight away from that perspective but at the end of the day I mean like you know I'll hark back to Fergie after the AA3 Scottish Cup final where he went out and just completely slaughtered the side and you know later on in life has had to admit that that wasn't the right thing to have done and that was a guy with a lot more Miles on the tank than, than Stephen Glass has just now. So even the greatest get it wrong sometimes in front of the in front of the camera, in front of the microphone. But let's go back to the actual football side of things. In terms of team style, because that was one of the things that was being hyped up about Stephen Glass coming in was we're going to see this expansive brand of you know attacking, exciting football. What are your thoughts on just what we've seen from that side of things from from Stephen Glass? It, it, like when one of the things that the, the when there was like the, the sort of job spec put out, um, it was. It was almost like a checkbox of everything that fans want ever. You want expansive football. We're going to bring more youth team players through. We're going to win more games. We're going to score more goals. We're going to play more. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to stop with just a, a, a one goal lead. We're going to play the, 
we're going to have a style that's our style. And it's like, yeah, that's what everyone wants to do. Yeah. It's really hard to do that. It's hard to do two of those things, let alone all six of them. And I think there's maybe been a bit more, I think the, the certainly the, the, the opening European games um, was kind of naive to some extent, um, but it worked. It, the, there was this sort of like, attacking free and it did feel like okay we are just going to go deal with this um i think there has been a bit more pragmatism i think there has been a bit more certainly laterally there's been a bit more defensive um i don't know if it's work on the training ground or what or, or if it's just the, the bodies getting used to working together but i think there there you can see in some of the stats like i think Aberdeen play at an average of about 400 short passes a game, which is, I think, the third uh, third highest in the league, but only about 80 long passes. Don't play an awful lot of long yeah. goals. Um, I don't know what the stats were last, last season to hand, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if they were almost reversed. Uh, it, uh, with Not quite, but the there's definitely been an attempt at... Um, keeping the ball on the ground, about passing and moving. I mean, and one of the reasons that the attack at the moment can be so frustrating is when it doesn't work, when somebody, like when a defender always just seems to be getting a nick or a toe on something. Yeah. And you can't have the interplay between the, the kind of four or five forward players that we want to have. So I think there's definitely been a, a move towards that style and a move to, and, and hopefully it is a long-term thing. But it, it's not an easy thing to do. It is not a, 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 it's not an overnight decision that you go, right, now we're going to play open, attacking, expansive football and with the same, largely the same group of players and throwing in a handful of new ones, you're going to be able to do that overnight. Um, I would say you would you would definitely give the style of play on a mark, you know, just the marks on the, for a style of play is an improvement over the last two and a half years, at least. Um Effectiveness has definitely not been there, but um, yeah, the the I, I think if you if you're going through the scorecard for glass, then style of play is or, or move towards a uh, a way of playing is one of the areas that he's been better in. I think it's an interesting one because I mean, in terms of go to data, because the data is always good. <laughs> in terms of this team style, I mean, you can clearly see this season we've definitely shifted towards being a more performance, a, a more possession based side than previous years it's not really up for dispute just if you watch games of football anyway but in terms of the actual stats we're comfortably sitting third in the league in terms of sides who have sequences of play that have more than 10 passes in them in any given time we've got 164 of those across the campaign so far also placed third in the league in terms of how many of those sequences of 10 plus passes end up with either a shot on goal or at least one touch in the box um, outperforming hips and hearts in that area, who I guess you'd look at as being our peers for the sake of where we'd hope to be finishing in the league. Um, but if you look at Celtic, Celtic lead the metric here on this. 28% of their 10-plus passing moves end with a shot on goal or a touch in the area. Ours is down around the kind of 15% mark, so they're nearly double where we are. In terms of direct attacks, and that's defined on um, with Opta as being the number of open play sequences that commence just inside a team's own half and has at least 50% of the movement towards the opposition's goal and ends in a shot or a touch in the opposition box. We've had 29 of those across the campaign. So we sit fifth in the table as far as that goes. 
sitting behind Ross County and Hearts and in the gruesome twosome, as you'd probably expect. Now, the area that we're really struggling in, in terms of our possession, our style, and this probably will come as no shock to anyone that watches us, is the speed with which we move the ball at the park. So despite us sitting comfortably in third spot in possession statistics, we sit 11th in the league in terms of how quickly we move the ball up the park. We average about 1.28 metres per second. Now, only Livingston sit below us on that particular metric. We're way, way behind Hib, Celtic and Rangers on this. They're around the kind of 1.4, 1.5 mark. Now, the top speed on this is Dundee at 1.9 metres per second, which is the highest in the UK. So I can only imagine that means they're just humping the ball at every given opportunity. Um, these are kind of like statistics sometimes can be quite meaningless, but I think at the same time, when you've watched Aberdeen all season, that, that does bear out, I think, what a lot of us have probably seen. There's been a lot of passes. We've had a lot of moves which have been... 10, 15, 20 passes in terms of length, but we've actually gone nowhere with the ball during that particular period of time. Yeah, we've probably progressed from the goalkeeper to Scott Brown. and Yeah, but not even in a particularly quick way. We're, we're, we're very, very slow in possession about how quickly we move up the park. I think that's kind of been a pleasing thing in that, you know, as Tom says, we you'd like to kind of have the man come out and say we're going to play like Ajax 95 or Barcelona Tika Taka, but... In some ways, at the end of the day, when you have when you know you can have the philosophy, whatever philosophy you want, Declan Gallagher is still Declan Gallagher, and it seems in the last since that maybe that Hibs game after the Dundee game when we thought it was curtains that we kind of have blended the possession-based play with some more direct play when it's required, and by direct play I don't mean just an aimless long punt up to Ramirez to hopefully hopefully someone wins a second ball. It's a smart diagonal or a long pass down the line. To get people onto the ball um so i think that's been a more pleasing element of the the learning if whether that's either from the manager or just the players themselves but yeah it's it's made us a more effective team as far as i'm concerned i think there was there was one segment of play at mcdermott park just a couple weeks before christmas that i turned to the guy i was at the game with and i was like I, I hear a lot of aberdeen fans on twitter or i see a lot of aberdeen fans on twitter i should say um talk about how the style's not really any different to what it was under dan mckinnis and there was one particular move at McDermott Park. I mean, it didn't end in anything. I need to point that out. It didn't end in a goal or anything like that. But we played the ball from effectively Lewis to Hayes across the back four, up the line, right the way across to Hayes again, who got it on the far far side, swung it across. And I think it might have been Jack. She had a pretty good header. But it was a really intricate, well-built-up passage of play. It, it took a while to get there, but it was a really, really nice piece of football. And I remember turning to the guy and I was like, anyone that watches us now doing that and tries to say this is not different to what the Derek McInnes side would have done needs to give their head a wobble because there was a couple of times in that in that segment play that the first thought of the centre half when he got the ball back would have just been to launch it up towards Sam Cosgrove or to somebody running up the channels. There's definitely been a marked difference in the way we're, we're playing. And it's a point to note as well is actually that the speed at which you move the ball at the park is not necessarily a sign of a good team or not. At our 1.28 metres per second, we actually outpaced Manchester City this season on how quickly we move the ball apart. Man City moved the ball just over a metre a second. So there are different ways to skin a cat, I guess, is where we're coming from. And I, I, I must admit, I'm enjoying us watching, I'm enjoying watching us this season a lot more in terms of what we're trying to do, whether it works a lot or whether it you know, comes off as a, as a different matter. But I'm encouraged by the fact we're trying to do something different. Yeah, I mean, I think they're even looking at the, looking at some of the stats. The the average number of long balls attempted per game by uh, like Ross McCrory three point five, David Bates four point two. Like 
Joe, Joe Lewis is on six. Yeah. So that, that kind of gives you an idea that we're that the centre backs are not just hitting and hoping. And I think there is it will take, and I think everyone was aware of that. It will take a while to make that work. Um, I think we've not had like a complete performance in the league this season at all. We've been good for sort of yeah. 20 minute spells, 15 minute spells, sometimes for a whole 45, usually the 45s are the ones that we've then gone on and lost. But we, we've had kind of a little bit where, where things have been sticking and there's been some really nice interplay and there's been some things that I've seen us doing that I haven't seen us doing in a very, very long time. Um, I think those are some of the most encouraging aspects of, of the, the glass era. Um, to sort of move away from that slightly as well, and, and just one other thing that I think probably is worthy of, of some credit um, is the set pieces and, and Alan Russell, who does seem to have been, um, it's, be, it's been inventive, um, where there's some, been some excellent shit housing. there's been some spe- like sort of special teams plays, um, and there's been quite a lot of inventiveness. I think we got we've got nine in the season, uh, nine this season from from set pieces. Um, well, and well, one of those was a penalty. The only person that's got more than that, only team that's got more than us, uh, is, is Rangers, and I, I can't remember how many penalties they've got. Probably fourteen or something. Um, <laughs> fourteen million. Uh, all of them, all the penalties. We are we're inventive at set pieces. I think the deliveries have been good, like. Didn't know that Dylan McGeek had that in his locker. Calvin Ramsey's deliveries have been very, very good. He's even been doing the Barry Robson and shooting from corners. Um, and so I think that's a that's been a, a big positive. I think we, we maybe have a, a good bit of work to do to make the most of the possession that we have and a, a few more killer killer balls maybe from somebody that's brought in in January. But in the style of play, I think there's been a bit of an evolution, but there's been a, a big jump. For, and, I know the McInnes sides were, were good with set pieces, but I think there's an extra level of inventiveness now. It's just a shame that the set pieces seem to have died off a little bit in recent weeks. Hopefully they've had a good, hopefully Alan Russell's been watching plenty of NFL over the Christmas break and he's come up with some excellent shithousing again there for us to, to get back into in January. Got to say once more again, that set piece against Hearts was just a work of art. Ah, just... I think to do it against Hearts was the best thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Like, the ultimate shithouse team getting shithoused was beautiful. Between that and shithouse against St. Johnston, just, yeah, that's what football's all about there. Definitely. There seemed to be a, a belief um, of people coming into the season that we were going to be this high-pressing, you know, very energetic side in, in, in defence. Gig and press. Gig and press. High, heavy metal football Gig and all and that press. kind of stuff. And it's kind of not something that we've really seen a lot of. And interestingly, again, on the stats, we're actually ranked the lowest in the league for high turnovers. So that being um, sequences that begin by winning the ball back in open play less than 40 metres from the opposition goal. And we're quite way behind. We sit on 90th in this. I think Livingston are 11th and they've got like 100. So we're, we're quite a distance behind. Um, and just to put that into comparison or put to context, Rangers are top on that with 173 and hearts are second on 148 so we're, we are significantly behind on that but amazingly we sit joint top of the chart for goal ending turnovers so those are those same high turnovers that then end in a goal now we've had three of those for the campaign which puts us the same as hearts and celtic so 
are we just being more economical with our passing, with our pressing, and we're exploiting those more frequently than other teams? We're, we're being a lot more selective when we do decide to, to press. I think there's probably an element of that. I think there's also probably a bit of an element of, for a, for a quite a large part of the season, teams like teams could sit very deep against us and go long. And, you you know, if there was any kind of attempt at a press uh, or, or winning possession back up uh, higher up the park, then it was quite easy to just quarterback it over the top of us. That Dundee, you know, not to hark back to the Dundee game, but that one being a, an example, Motherwell did it a couple of times to us. Um, so, and I think it's almost like the flip side of us being a, a team that's almost entirely built on possession, but not being particularly incisive with that possession means that the you know most opposition teams that we come up against are going to have 35 40% of the ball so there's not going to be that many there's, there's fewer opportunities for us to press and win it back high up the park um i think it would certainly be whereas like you know rangers are going to be probably nine of their players most of the time are going to be in the opposition half um so i think it would certainly be a very useful part of the evolution if we can be a little if we can find someone who has those kind of a bit more creative uh, killer passes and and you know start to win a few more uh, turnovers high up the pitch as well um maybe as we're a little bit less suspect at the back i think as well it maybe reflects the i think we've got a pretty fit team and there's certainly you know i think a lot of the guys are you know quick enough but we're not the most athletic team either like you know like for example you know Ramirez like tries his hard tries his hardest but he's not the fastest in the world Lewis Ferguson's you know not the fastest go through the team it's probably much like that we've not got any blistering pace we've got got like a Graham Shinney or a Willow Flood in there who can do that job so I do wonder if that's part of it as well and maybe that's going to play into the recruitment we've signed someone obviously in, uh, in Dante Polvara what a name that is by the way We'll come on to Big D in a minute. Who, by all accounts, you know, six foot four coming from college football, you'd think is going to be a real athlete. So, you know, with the acquisitions of players like that, then I can expect those stats to improve. I was just wondering, so on the, the defensive pressing piece in particular, if actually it was harder to do earlier in the season because the back unit wasn't really a back unit. You had Ramsey and or McKenzie caught halfway up the pitch, the ball shelled over. It's kind of difficult to press as a defensive unit if you guys are all over the shop. Whereas laterally switching to the four, we do feel a bit more compact. And if someone goes, someone's usually coming back to fill in. So it's maybe easier to sort of press as a unit. I think in principle, if you can find the way of doing it like at the right time, like everyone running around chasing everyone for 90 minutes, you just can't do that for 90 minutes. It's not normally practical. So if there is a way where we can decide right now is whether it's a it's a five, 10 minute spell where we're just going to really press everything and try and win the ball and try and do something, that feels a bit smarter than everyone just running themselves into the ground. And then after 75 minutes, we're done. And, you know, it's, it's quite easy to get at us. Um, on the style piece, I know I'm always the outlier here. Um, it's less of a concern to me what it looks like on the pitch. It's the results. And it's not really changed anything from a results point of view. We've regressed slightly. What I will say is I do, it's not really panned out this half of the season, but theoretically, you've got more of the ball 
there are fewer chances for the opposition to score. So if we can retain the ball, but maybe, you know, not just popping it around between our defenders and making a mistake, if we're doing it further up the pitch, we're retaining the ball, you'd like to think with maybe one or two more creative signings, if you can build a base in midfield and then you've got a couple of guys that can do something, they're getting a wee short intricate pass in rather than the ball shelled up to them. So you'd like to think that would be how you would actually start to really push on. So I'm quite, I'm optimistic about that, but I think in order to really make the most of us getting a foothold in the game and keeping the ball, we need a little bit more creativity, whether that's someone that can you know, sort of run with the ball or whether it's just encouraging the likes of a Ferguson to just go beyond. You've got Scott Brown in there, for example, if you've played with the four at the back, you've got numbers there. Why don't you go and be the one that causes the opposition defenders some confusion because you're not supposed to be there? Because I feel like he had that season where I know he scored a few penalties, but he scored a few goals from open play. He's 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 fit. He's got a good hit on him. I'd like to see him be in and around the final third a little bit more than he maybe is currently. It's interesting you say that about us having more of the ball. So in theory, we should be preventing the opposition from creating chances. I think we talked about this last week. Generally speaking, we have. The problem has been that when the opposition have had that one chance, which usually stems from us, you know, handing it to them on a silver plate, they take it. So in that sense, it is encouraging what we were doing, but we just need to still work on cutting out those stupid mistakes. In fairness, I think we have started to cut out a lot of those mistakes in, in more recent weeks, I think. What, I was thought, what I've always thought was interesting about this whole pressing discussion was, have you guys seen the Graham Hunter, Stephen Glass interview? I downloaded it and then we turned to proper shit and did what goes into it. Okay, cool. If you've not listened to it, I would I would actually encourage anyone to go and have a listen to it because it's it's a really good insight into how Stephen Glass views the game of football. And they talk about pressing a lot in this. And Stephen Glass has got a really good take on it, which was this, this idea that every coach out there will say to you, my team press, my team press, and my team press. He's like, it's bullshit. No team goes out there and presses all the time. It doesn't happen. The best teams out there, they press when it's the right time to press and you have to do it as a unit and you have to do it as a collective and you have to pick the right time to go and you have to know as a unit when is the right time to go. And that's something that takes a lot of time to, to, to implement within a team and it takes a lot of effort and a lot of um, hard work in the training ground to, to get that and to get that level of understanding amongst your squad. And I thought it was a really interesting take because I think we'd been sold this idea or, or I don't know why we've been sold it because I don't think it's ever been said anywhere that this is what we were going to do. But I think people just automatically assumed because we're talking about exciting, attacking, high energy football, this is what we're going to do. And it was a really good point. And, and Graham, you kind of just touched on it there. It's about, okay, your Jurgen Klopp's of this world can kind of get away with playing the style of football that they play in terms of the press because they've got some of the fittest footballers on the planet playing for them and they rely very heavily as well on the front four doing a lot of that work and they're all very intelligent footballers and they're you know some of the best in the world so they've got that inbuilt football acumen and intelligence to know when's the right time to do it when you're looking at our level we don't have that so you have to have a team who are much more disciplined I think about when they decide to go and when they decide not to go and I wonder if we're seeing that because I think it's interesting that we've got the lowest number of high turnovers in the league but the highest number of turnovers that end up in goals it suggests to me almost in a way that we're picking the right times to do it we're not just doing it for doing its sake and that to me is an encouraging sign as well it's something that I think that we weren't necessarily particularly good at in previous seasons was 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 really getting in around midfielders and defenses of other teams in areas that we could really threaten them if we turn the ball over at that point and and so I'm, I'm kind of intrigued to see how this continues to develop it's a very small sample size for this 
to, to, to work in. It's only half a season. But it's an interesting take on it, I think. I think it's interesting in terms of the development of this just team itself. Because I think we saw in Carabag, or maybe when I say in Carabag, I mean at Carabag, at Pataudry, we were victim of probably trying to go a bit gung-ho and trying to press them in places where it was definitely not appropriate, as it turned out. And even Celtic at home, I think we were guilty. Maybe the players were guilty of just being getting carried away by the support. But you saw at times we made some poor decisions and Celtic about the players to cut through the lines very quickly. And before you know it, Jack McKenzie or Calvin Ramsey are faced with a two-on-one situation, which is one of the reasons why I do not favour the 3-4-3 system. But anyway, that's not there. Um, so yeah, I think it's interesting there has been that development through the team, just this team alone, not even going back to previous regimes. Well, I think we can probably wrap up a review on on, on how the manager's done right now, I think. So I think, Tom, Gav, you guys have already probably set your stall out here. We're going to rank guys in our traditional A to F scale. You're probably sitting in the C, C minus kind of pot at the moment. Depending what day it is, it can be C minus, it can be D plus. <laughs> Which I think is basically the same thing, but never mind. Graham? I think I'm just going to have to pick a C. We're just bang in the middle. When you look at the league table, we're in the middle. You could exclude Europe or the league, whatever your preference is. There's C competitions you might have a crack at. We're out with one, we're in two, we're in the middle. You know, it's just it's just average, um, which isn't necessarily as damning as it might sound because it there has been quite a lot of turnover at the club. It is a new manager. We are trying to do things differently, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not necessarily trying to be too down about it. I'm just looking at we're out of the League Cup. We're in sixth and there's been some poor results some good ones, so it's kind of difficult for me to say that it's anything other than than average, but what I will say is I'm a little bit more optimistic about the second half of the season than I was, you know, probably six weeks ago, for example. Yeah, and I think I'm probably going to clean house here, I guess, with a C as well, I think. I think I would, I would tend to agree with Tom, I think on the kind of style of play, I think we're probably, I would suggest we're kind of moving into that kind of B, B plus kind of territory. I think he's actually done a pretty decent job at trying to shift that mentality mindset in quite a short period of time um the the Wraith Rovers League Cup exit is like a straight F for me right there and then that run of fixtures between the kind of middle of August till the middle of October was just absolutely fucking horrendous but there's been signs of improvement I think there's signs of learning on the job which is you know it's that thing isn't it as a, a football fan of Aberdeen Football Club you don't want to think about somebody learning on the job with your club you kind of feel that they should be doing that with what you'd perceive to be a lesser a lesser team but who knows? I guess we'll see what happens come the end of the season. Big, big January transfer window ahead, and then we'll see how we go when we start up against uh, the Nuco in a, in a couple of weeks' time. Tom, what, what do you think overall in terms of the manager? I, I was going to say exactly that. I, I think a, a C, C minus so far. I, I think I, I take the point that uh, you know that Graham made that over the course of the season so far it's been average, but I think this is an under average strength division than it has been in, in recent years. Um we're it's a weird division. You know, we're we're when we come back, we're kind of what two, potentially two wins away from being fourth. Um drop drop points and you drop back down into kind of eighth, ninth position again. But nobody's really other than hearts at the start of the season um has really been able to put together a, a great run. The 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 League Cup exit was incredibly disappointing. The run 
up to that, up to and including the Dundee game was incredibly disappointing. I think the style has the the, the three things that you can kind of judge uh, Glass on, or the four things you can let's say there's four things you can judge him on. Recruitment, I think we've got a C. I think we've got um, overall results. I think we've got a C minus. I think style, we've maybe got a B. And the kind of integrating the youth team, I think probably a B plus. The idea that, you know, the, the players that have been recalled and the idea that there's going to be uh, more homegrown players in the second half of the season is is quite encouraging. Um, but overall, it's, you know, based on the results and the expectations, then even with the expectation that this was going to be a bit of a learning season and a, it was going to be an evolution and there was, it wasn't going to be plain sailing. I, I still think we're a good six, nine points off what would have been with the players available and um, the, the strength of the, the teams that we've come up against. We, we should be a good six, nine points better off than we are at the moment. Yeah. Completely agree. Would agree that um, recruitment overall not been good enough and that will be a source of pressure for him to and the entire recruitment um structure to prove that they can in fact in fact identify players that will come into Aberdeen and overall yet yeah, results I don't think I've been up to it I think despite all the turnover of players and the change of philosophy it's still a very good budget he's been heavily backed and we should be performing better than we are the league cup was disastrous getting knocked out when we did I expect us to get past Edinburgh City, of course, but, you know, on a way tie almost anywhere in the SPL or even a good performing championship team, I think will be a huge cha- test for us. Truthfully, don't expect us to do anything there. So, yeah, um, like I say, if I was the chairman, by no means would I be, you know, calling for his head, but I'm not convinced that he's the man to take us forward quite yet. I guess recruitment's a good place to move on to. Um, we've kind of touched on it already that... Recruitment in the summer was probably not as good as it could have been. I guess we've all spoken about this before the, the recruitment side of things in terms of the the way that our structure works with recruitment was probably not you know it wasn't in place at an appropriate time. Let's put it that way. With the the new head, the recruitment only coming in the door about a week before the summer transfer window closed. It's a big one, obviously in January, and the big news of this week so far. Now we record this on a Sunday night, and what always inevitably happens when we do this is we record it, and then something happens on Monday or Tuesday before we publish, which means that we look like a right bunch of dicks because we're well outdated by now. But the big news so far this week was the announcement on Saturday that Dante Povara was our first signing of the January window, the first ever Dante to sign on for Aberdeen. 21-year-old midfielder, having come through the New York City FC Academy setup before going down the college route, playing with Georgetown University. So it's, it's going to be fair to say, I imagine he'll be straight away the most intelligent guy in our dressing room. He was a two-time All-American, whatever that means. I always think that sounds like he's like won like the World Wrestling Federation heavyweight title or something. This year, he picked up the 2021 Men's Mac Herman Trophy. That's awarded to the best player in the NCAA Division One. Described as being an imposing midfielder, dominating in the midfield area, happy to try and control the game and allow other people to create. Six foot four, so he's not exactly a shrinking violet. According to the player himself, he's had options with MLS sides and European outfits. Um, Dave Cormack indicated tonight that he said no to the Bundesliga, but the interesting thing there is what Dave didn't say, which is Bundesliga what, given there are about 47 tiers of the Bundesliga. Um, Now, he appears to come with a greater pedigree than Jack Gerrard or John Gallagher, guys who we've heard a lot of comparisons about in the last 24 hours. 
just to put that in to put that into context, Gerd didn't even play NCAA Division One level. Galker did with Notre Dame, but he certainly wasn't as highly rated as Povara appears to be. And for comparison, Christian Ramirez played NCAA Division Two football, so that's the league below. And clearly, Ramirez has done okay coming here. So I know a lot of people were looking at the college football thing yesterday and getting up on their high horse about that's the same level as Highland League and all this kind of stuff, but not entirely sure necessarily if that's a red herring or not, trying to judge a guy coming out of that setup. Now, it's fair to say that this has sparked plenty of discussion online on Aberdeen Twitter after news broke last night. So guys, I'd just like to get your thoughts about this move. For me, it's a very intriguing one more than anything. Well, I mean, as you say, in corners of Don's Twitter, he's had the kind of welcome similar to the welcome that Australian border force have given Novak Djokovic. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is um, largely unfair. I'm going to just throw that one out there. Um, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we just, we don't truly know what that level indicates. And the way the things work in America is very different to the way things work in Scotland. That, yeah, he came to the New York City Academy and he chose to go through college because that's generally speaking what the Americans do. So he could be just this outstanding talent playing at a level that's so far below him because of his education to then come here and then tear things up. At the same time, you know, Carrie spoke to us about this level saying that pretty much any young Scottish professional could go there and probably dominate. You've seen some of the names that have won that, um, the player of the year trophies, one who have been in Britain, been in Scotland, not done a huge amount. On the same level, there are some that have gone on, had very successful careers. Dave Cormack's come out fighting regarding his talent and what he's turned down to come to Aberdeen. Very interesting. I think it's goes back to what Graham said a couple of times, that if we keep on tapping the same markets again and again, we're not going to evolve. We need to be smart. We've got people in America looking at players who know the market. The ultimate test here is the due diligence the due diligence of our management and recruitment structure to identify these players and be able to work out, can they translate that talent into the SPL and will they be a success? And that'll be the test for Stephen Glass, Darren Mowbray, Stephen Gunn, and ultimately Dave Cormack. I think it is a really intriguing signing. I think it, like, if if you took away the backstory, the cool name, the trophies for individual excellence that you know we we've never really heard of and just we're told you've signed a six foot four 21 year old midfielder he's from out with scotland um there's been interest we would be at least intrigued by it it's almost like where he's come from is being held as um where he's come from and the level he's come from and the, the, the level of competition he's got is almost being held up as a negative against him. It's not just college college football, like college so it's not just college soccer in America that it has this very weird quality mix. There are players in MLS who could walk into any league in the world. There are also players that would struggle to get a game at Scottish League One, League Two level. Like but it there are there are guys that like you know, that that would would be still performing in Spain or in England for almost any team. They're like, but Bradley Wright Phillips is one of the all time top goal scorers in MLS. It's such American soccer is such a weird drop yeah. off in quality. I think all we can say is it's good that we're looking out with our normal parameters. 
it's good that we're looking. He he's younger than Connor McLennan, who's still seen as having lots of promise and um, lots of possibilities, um, in an area that we do need to develop. And it's not a hugely risky signing. It's not like we're you know it's not like we're paying crazy cash to 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 to, to someone to bring him on on the hope that that he, that he comes good. If he I have no expectations whatsoever of him coming in and this season tearing up trees. I'd be very surprised if come the end of the season, he's got like 10 league appearances, including substitutes. But I think starting to to learn how to play in a more physical league, um, how being six foot four and having to deal with people shithousing you and, and like kicking you up the arse for 90 minutes will be a huge part of his development. But I don't know. Not nobody will have a handful of people will have seen enough to um, to judge him on the ability. But it, it's a punt, and it's one worth taking. I think this is the thing I couldn't wrap my head around yesterday. The people losing their shit about this was like none of us until twenty four hours before that had even heard of this guy. Let's let's not try and pretend otherwise. You know, so none of us are in a place to judge whether this guy's any cop or not. I think you're right. It's where he's coming coming from what we perceive to be the level is being held against them. I think folk need to cool their jets. It's only, well, he only signed on the 8th of Jan. There's still 23 days of the transfer window left. Now, if don't get me wrong, if, if Dante Povara ends up being our only signing of the January transfer window and we lose Lewis Ferguson, Calvin Ramsey and Ryan Hedges, yeah, people have got every right to maybe have the pitchforks out at that point. But that's not where we are at the moment. Um, I don't know if you guys went and watched the YouTube showreel and YouTube showreels are always a very dangerous thing to go and watch, don't get me wrong I distinctly recall watching a YouTube showreel for Tor Christiansen he looked like a player, so yeah <laughs> steer well clear It's exactly the example I was going to use and I remember Gary being really excited about it as well He had a good name, he had a good name <laughs> um, The only thing I'll say is, again, it's very difficult to judge because the context is everything you've got no idea who the guys he's playing against what sort of quality you're at Reminded me a bit of Tom Rogic is who I would compare him to, the way that he played. Well, I was going to say context is a big thing. I mean, like, you know, for example, Mark McCulloch, who's a name that Aberdeen fans of a certain age will remember, yeah, ripped us to shreds at goals. So if someone was watching that with a camera that day, then he would look like a player, but you could tell he was absolutely nowhere near up to playing for Aberdeen. So Mur- um, M- Murray McCulloch, wasn't it? Yeah. Mark Murray, whatever. Um, to, to be fair, we had one guy being sick in a bin off the pitch, and I didn't see anyone on those that YouTube showreel for Dante doing that. For, for the absolute avoidance of doubt, to anyone who listens to it, the one spewing the bin is not represented here. <laughs> no, it was it was Alan Gray, quote unquote, the fittest of all of us. I was just going to say I know nothing about American football uh, or soccer, so I'm not in a <laughs> position to. Uh, comment on what level that might correlate to back here. And just because someone's at a level doesn't mean that's their level. He's a young guy. You know, that's how players get on earth and that's how they get found and that's how they get bigger get bigger moves. So from my point of view, he signed for Aberdeen. So, you know, wish him all the best. Hope it works out. I have said before, if all we're doing is pottering around League One, League Two, you'd just get people up in arms saying, oh, it's the same old crap, why are we doing that? do something different everyone's like oh, this is crazy this is different it's inevitable we're going to be taking either either forced honors by atlanta or we're going to be taking gambles whatever point of view you've got we're going to be getting players from the states 
we have a link up there. We have a huge connection within Aberdeen now. It's going to happen. People are just going to have to deal with it. And I'm not so sure it's any less risky than picking up an Austin Samuels, for example. I didn't work out too well, and he came from supposedly a much better level. So did Longstaff. Like Matty Longstaff didn't work out. You know, he's, he's played Premier League football in England. So that's kind of anyway. The vast majority of Aberdeen's signings are going to be a gamble because we don't have a great deal of a budget. So we are always going to be in a market of if this comes off, he's either going to be great for us and that's his level, or we've unearthed one here and we'll punt him on in a couple of seasons and we'll get some money and we'll try and go again. That's unfortunately where we are. If we're doing that from a different market that other people aren't fishing in, then maybe you've got the, the pick of the talent before everyone else gets there. I'm, I'm quite happy to, to go with this and see see how it works out. I think I made the point to someone on Twitter yesterday, was like, and, and Tom, you hit on it a minute ago, this is a low, you know, I want to get too corporate about it. It's a low value, low risk transfer. He's not costing us the fortune to come in. It's a punt. We'll see if he's any good or not. I expect we'll take more of these types of punts going forward out of the American system, not less of them. And who knows, if we have 19 Jack Gers coming in the door in the next five seasons... Someone's getting sacked. But... It's 19 games with Wraith Rovers lost. Yeah, okay, right. There's that part to it. But if you have 19 of these guys come in and they're horseshit, but you unearth one in, one gem and you can sell that guy for five, six, seven million quid, that's a worthwhile exercise to have gone through, providing he hasn't cost you a League Cup fourth round tie at Starks Park. For a club like us, that's what we'll, that's what we'll end up doing. I would say that's, again, where I come back to the point of due diligence, that we need people to be in the place to make the good judgment call whether these guys are going to actually be up to playing in the SPL. We can't be bringing in 19 donkeys for one good one. But I guess you're you're never going to know until you bring them in, Thor. Are you? That's the problem. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. We just need people to know the relative qualities. Even if, and I don't want to like start on a, on a, on a, on a downer with them, but even if he comes in and it doesn't work out, we... Are, so for, for at the moment in the, the, the current transfer window, it looks like we're going to lose Ryan Hedges. If he goes to Blackburn, Blackburn will be playing, Blackburn will be paying members of their playing staff 15, 20 grand a week. Like we cannot, com- yeah. so, uh, and he will, so to, to replace, to easily replace a player of the quality of Ryan Hedges, you would, that's kind of the market that you're in. We've got to be looking at different markets and, you know, like it, Hibs looking at in Norway, they've already been in the US as well. Um, Celtic looking in Japan. There's leagues which maybe are not quite as financially successful as some in Europe, maybe are on a par or, or, or slightly less uh, financially lucrative than, than ours, or who um, the players could see it as a, a stepping stone to those that kind of money and down to England. That's got to be where we look at. And I would far rather that we're taking punts on 21-year-old, you know, top of their class college graduates who I have absolutely no doubt will look after themselves, be one of the fittest players there. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, it remains to be seen what the technique's like in comparison to the rest of the league and how they deal with the physical side of things. But I would far rather we're taking punts on those, those kind of guys who are not going to be on crazy money if it doesn't work out, fine. They they might find their way somewhere else in the, the pyramid. Then, if we're looking at the guys who are on the fringes at Bristol City and are probably on four times as much money, yeah, absolutely. And again, we've seen in recent years guys from whether it's Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, mm-hmm. absolutely rip us to shreds. I think people have just got to get 
out of this idea of the kind of quote unquote more fashionable leagues and understand there's quality all around the world. And yeah, as Tom says, we can get it probably for a fraction of the price to then benefit us both financially and in terms of on the pitch. You're starting to get to kind of money ball territory here. Um, you know, we need to replace Ryan Hedges in the aggregate, but it's, it's not far away from the truth though. And this is what you've seen Brentford do. It's what you've seen uh, Michelin do to great success is, is take a much more, and I know people are going to laugh at this, but to take a much more data focused look at the game and not be quite so emotional about it. Um, and look at, well, what do we need to replicate and how can we do that at a, a budget that we work with and hopefully get some success in the short term on the pitch, but then allows you to sell these guys on at a profit and then reinvest back into either your own youth setup or into exploring more of these markets further. I mean, No Blaha, who was our guest last week on the show, made a very good point tonight about the fact that this is actually an intriguing move for Aberdeen in the first place because we don't know how this lad Dante is going to get on. Fingers crossed it works out fantastically and he's an absolute diamond. Who knows? But one thing it does do for us is it raises our profile within the American setup as being, you know, this is a guy who now comes out of the American setup being the top player in his division this year. As Noel said, a lot of Americans will know maybe about Celtic. They might know about Rangers. Outside of that, in Scotland, they probably don't know an awful lot. To then see a guy who's come out of the NCAA Division One top player of the season moving to Aberdeen, not moving to a Bundesliga Zwei team or whatever, potentially does raise our profile in the States to a pretty good level and means that maybe we have got a good opportunity, especially if we can prove if this guy's good enough and he comes in and we can prove he can play first-team football in a, <clears throat> a league like ours and maybe, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, touching wood, we get into Europe, he can play European football or he can get a move to a team down south further down the line. It, it, it opens that that corridor, doesn't it? It opens that pathway that people see about, well, maybe that's not a bad club to think about going to. Um, it's an it's an interesting move from that perspective as well from the club. Yeah, absolutely. It's that key point of proving we can develop young players. And I was thinking today when there was the chat going around about Teddy Jenks getting recalled to Brighton that the three we've done so far this season could harm us potentially future in our recruitment from England, you know, clubs are very careful about where they put their players out on loan. And if they see Aberdeen as being a place that's not a good place for players to be, that could be detrimental. We just need to prove that we are capable of, yeah, as you say, developing players, players, making sure that players are better when they leave in comparison to when they arrived. I don't think it's the be all and end all of our recruitment strategies, picking up college kids out of the States either. And I think that people seem to think this is what we're doing now. I saw someone tweet yesterday, some guy was like, oh, this is just an example of where the club's headed and it doesn't align with my expectations. And it's like, it's a punt signing on a kid who's the best in his division at the moment in, a, in an untapped market for us. We're taking a, a punt on it. This needs to be part of a blended recruitment strategy, which will include bringing through our own youth, picking up the best, excuse me, I'd like to think, picking up the best of the emerging Scottish talent who are maybe at other clubs at the moment, or not even Scottish talent. Maybe look at guys like... McGrath at St Mirren is a good example and he's not even really emerging he's 25 26 but but picking you know what we did with Kenny McLean what we did with Graham Shinney what we did with Johnny Hayes that type of thing we we're picking up players from what you would call a class as being the, the the smaller teams in the league who are doing well they're proven commodities at our level and then also taking punts potentially on players from outside of our outside of our league and, and hopefully not as, as Tom touched on League One or League Two England Dross, who are on high wages for very little in the way of return. And I, I don't think that's a bad 
strategy to be looking at personally. We never even get the best guys out of England. Like the Premier League clubs that have loaned us players don't loan out, you know, their best players to Aberdeen when we've had guys from lower down in England. We're not getting the cream of the crop. We're just getting expensive guys who turn out to be about as good as the guys we've got. Well, that's the experience I've had anyway. If we're all honest, what's our success rate for English Championship, English Premier League loan players coming to Aberdeen in recent seasons? Madison, Ward. I mean, I know Hector was in Premiership, but yeah, Hector. Maybe one in four, if we're lucky. I mean, I think that, I, mean, I, I don't think that's just limited to us either. I mean, I think if you look look across the leagues at who has been brought in, um, St Johnson brought in a couple of players from the, from um, Man United and, and a couple from the Championship as well. I think they've all gone back. Um, it, it, it there's a reason that they are so far out of the on the periphery that they're not being loaned out to uh you know Sheffield United or someone like that 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 if there were options I think they they would slightly arrogantly rather that go, that they go there than anywhere else. I think to to kind of address the point and some of the criticism over this deal in particular is I would frame it a different way. So there's a 21-year-old American college player who has twice been named an all-star at college level has a very good record at, at, at that level. We're, we're not having to pay him an awful lot of money. Normally, the, the level that players come in from college to MLS is not like ridiculous salary-wise. Um, and he's been named the best player, the the um named the best player this season. And you want us to ignore him. He would like to cut, like he, he's an option, and you'd rather that we don't take him up. Don't take him up on that. Like I, I, I am just as skeptical. I mean, I, I think the overall standard of MLS is probably worse than the overall standard in the Scottish Premier League, but the uh, Scottish Premiership. But I think the the highs are very high, the lows are very low. You're you're kind of taking a punt. And if you look at the America cap, a hell of a lot of players. They play an awful lot of games, and because their squads international, sometimes they can't. Especially at the moment, they can't get them all back to, to play international games. So you do tend to get guys who are absolute garbage, but have got like 15 caps and six goals for for the US. It's a punt, but I can't understand why the thinking is we should never be taking a punt on this guy. Rather than all the signs are, he might be all right. Let's let's see what it's like. And I mean, I guess when you say that, it's like, what is it? Two-time All-American player of the season, whatever. Yeah. If he was going into, say, the NFL, he'd be in the first round draft. So he's clearly an A-list talent. Let's just get let's get a look at him. Subject to the visa that he's always still got to go through. He's an Aberdeen player. Let's just give the guy some backing and let's not call him shite before we've even seen him. Absolutely, definitely. <laughs> Speaking of which, um, other transfer this week, Austin Samuels um, headed back to Wolves, um, having made a total of seven appearances, no goals to his name. I can only presume we're not taking up that option to buy. <laughs> <laughs> How did you come up with that one? <laughs> nah, mate. Um, like I said last week, if he's not going to play, not good for him to be here, not good for us for him to be here, so... All the best, Austin. I mean, there there was early on there was some signs that he could do something that other players we had couldn't do, um, but didn't do it very often. Didn't do it consistently, and laterally couldn't do it at all. So I don't think I don't think it's a huge surprise. Um, 
and you know, fair, fair. I mean, it's only fair to him as well. Like, if he's in the last six months of his contract, presumably he's not going to get another Wolves contract to go out somewhere else and try and get something. Because I, I, yeah, I would be, uh, I'd be surprised if we see him again. Yeah, absolutely. I've said it before. When Bones said what he said about him, I just could never understand. <laughs> Your it. mind totally shifted, didn't it, about so, it? Well, I, I was always dubious because I kind of, I think I felt the same way. But then when someone puts it into words to you. It then becomes, yeah, that is what it is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You, you see that too. A square peg to fit a round hole. A very, very poor piece of recruitment all round. A punt. Look at it, look at it in the past. Um, yeah, it's a punt, but it didn't work out. And yeah, it was bad. Didn't work out. On a more positive note, having been recalled from his loan spell at Kelty Hearts last week, Connor Barron, the Angus Iniesta, as I think he was being nicknamed at... Um, was it Breaking City, I think, last season when he was there? I think a STV host referred to him as that. Could have been, could have been. Um, he's extended his Don's contract until the summer of 2024, which is good news. And highly regarded defender Mason Hancock, he's also signed a new one-year extension, and he was shipped off to Sterling Albion, who are now under the tutelage of ex-Don Darren Young in League Two. So he's going out there to get some first-team experience this season. On the women's side, women's team's Scottish Women's Cup tie against Glasgow girls and women this afternoon was postponed. So the girls return to action next Sunday at the Bob Moral. They host Spartans and SWPL1 in the first match since their winter break. M Hunter Gavin Beath will be hoping to start 2022 in positive fashion, sitting fifth spot in a highly competitive table. Spartans sit one point behind, but in eighth place. I went to the Dons, we'd give them a bit of breathing room. League starting to split very much into two halves now between the kind of fully professional, highly funded sides and everybody else. So hopefully, fingers crossed, the ladies can get off to a winning start to 2022 on Sunday. And on to Lone Watch, Evan Towler with a first start and he lasted the whole 90 minutes for Elgin City in League Two on Friday night as they played out a Desmond. Rest in peace with Edinburgh City. In the Highland League, Jack Milne started and lasted the whole 90 minutes for Brecon City in their 1-0 defeat for Martin that saw Kevin Henrati and Tyler McKayta drop to the bench for the hosts. Jamie Shingler retained his position in goals for Keith as they fell to a 3-2 defeat at Wick Academy. Huntley's match against Devon Vale fell foul to COVID, which meant there was no outing for Jack McIver or Tom Ritchie, and Jack McIver's loan spell has also been cut short by the Dons. The youngster apparently going to be returning to train with the Dons first team, but don't be surprised to see him head out on another loan deal to maybe League One or League Two. Kieran Nguenya, 90 minutes under his belt and a clean sheet as Kelty Hearts beat Sterling Albion by three goals to nil, who saw the aforementioned Mason Hancock come off the bench for the last 30 minutes. Mark Gallagher not included in the four first squad as they beat Stranraer by three goals to two. Peter Head's fixture against Queen's Park was postponed, so no action for Ryan Duncan, and Michael Ruth failed to make the squad for Falkirk as they made a statement by thumping Dumbarton by six goals to two. And finally, Luke Turner retained his spot in the starting lineup for Cliftonville, and he scored as they saw off the wonderfully named Island McGee in the first round of the Irish Cup. Sounds like a place I'd want to banish one of our ex-managers to. <laughs> no man is an island unless... <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. Next Tuesday... Sees the return of the Cinch Premiership. We've all missed it for three weeks. The rearranged fixture against New Cole Rangers at Petodre Stadium. Now, at this point, we still don't have any idea whether we'll have fans in the ground or whether we'll be restricted to 500. The club appear to be planning for 
crowd will be in because they're still selling tickets and encouraging people to buy for them, presumably with a no refund policy. I'm sure that's in the terms and conditions somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Obviously, this will be the first trip to Pataudry under the tutelage of Giovanni Van Bronckhorst for new co-rangers. Gents, just what are your kind of thoughts, expectations, hopes for as we return to a level of normality and the return of the cinch? First of all, I hope that there is at least some fans allowed in. I think kind of hopeful that it may not get back to immediately full full capacity, but at the very least, something a bit more thought out than, you know, 500 fans available to your local Highland League grounds, 500 fans to be able to rattle around the 50,000 capacity stadium. Um, so I, I think something a bit more nuanced. So hopefully, hopefully fans in the door. Um, but the other thing is to give the Van Bronckhorst Rangers team a, a test. No one's tested them yet. I think he's had a he's had a pretty easy um, start to his career as, uh, as Rangers manager. I think there was they've if anything they've looked more comfortable than they were laterally under Gerard when probably or it's certainly an easy story to spend that um, people knew that he was off. Um, there was some discontent in the dressing room about that, and there was maybe a few wandering minds that meant that the, the defence was nowhere near as good as it was last season and, and you, you felt you could get at them. So far this season, or sorry, so far since Van Bronckhorst come in, he's just like kind of nipped and tucked the, the team a bit. Um, hopefully, uh, and they've looked a little bit, they've looked a little stronger. He's had the kind of luxury of trying everybody out and seeing what how he wants this team to look. It would be very nice if we could make it incredibly uncomfortable for them, and like get get fired in like we did at Ibrox. Um, I don't think he's been asked to do anything particularly clever tactically. I don't think he's been asked to change his, you know, had to chase a game or had to change things with a game. And it would be quite nice to see um, if you know it'd be, it would be very nice if we were the first ones to to turn the screw a little bit on him. Yeah, I mean, the interesting part is, I mean, since he's come in in, in in the league, away to Hibs, but that was on the 1st of December when Hibs were going through the real just fucking nightmare spell that we're going through. So that's a given. Plus they needed an 85th minute penalty kick to, to get them through that one. A home fixture against Dundee, an away fixture at Tynecastle you look at and go, that could be quite tricky, but they were 2-0 up after 13 minutes. And Alan McGregor was man of the match that day, which kind of tells you everything about how that game kind of panned out. Hearts really had a good go at them, just couldn't quite convert. Since then, home against St Johnston, home against the Dungeon United youth team practically because they were so badly hit by COVID that day. They only scraped a one-nil win that afternoon, and then a two-nil win at home against St Mirren, and that was a St Mirren side who, you know, we saw them at Pataudry, who I think play in a very open fashion, don't score a lot of goals. Again, Rangers were two-nil up after twenty-five minutes, I think, that day, and then just kind of saw it out. You're absolutely right, Tom. They've not really had a massive test. As yet, nothing really to test the metal of the new man in charge. What will be interesting is the way that we decide to try and set up, I guess, whether we go and have a, a right good go at them. And I wonder if that might be dictated as well by whether there is a crowd. Well, yeah, I mean, I just want to echo the sentiments of Tom that I just hope there is a crowd of some kind in the ground, purely because watching the, the Dundee game was quite depressing. Just seeing yeah. the empty stadium again, it's just not what you what you know football to be and for the other element that I just think that having a crowd in will give us a much better chance of winning the game we saw overall when it came to closed doors games that it comes down typically to just 
the better team usually wins and truth be told Rangers have probably got a better a better group of players than us it's a difficult one to predict though because you know obviously there's nine days between us recording this and the game itself so who knows what could happen in terms of transfers both in and out um I think Rangers only thing they've done is bring in the guy Jamie Sands which I'm sure is causing a lot of inner strife for the more staunch types out there especially when they find that his middle name is Robert is that true have you just made no, that I I've just made that um I know yeah Andy Halliday must just be so conflicted right now um <laughs> so yeah I, what do I hope for yeah I just I just hope we give them a really good game like I say I hope there's a crowd in I think that atmosphere and pressure will benefit us more than it will it'll benefit us more a lot more than if it's behind closed doors I think Rangers love a significant advantage there Graham yeah just the same same boat as everyone else let's hope there's a meaningful attendance and I think Tom said just give them a game let them know that they're up against a team that's capable and it really wants the three points I don't I didn't think we would get anything out of the game Ibrox and obviously you know we got a slightly unlucky maybe just to come away with a point but got a good result and a good performance so it's not to say that nothing can happen it's just there's nothing more frustrating it's really annoying when your team just doesn't turn up full stop but it's really annoying in a home game you just don't turn up against them so yeah give them something to think about that they haven't had to think about so far and let's see what the new manager and the team's actually all about and more importantly we've come off the back of a reasonable run so you'd like to think we can start um you know just build up a bit ahead of steam again and hopefully just get the fans back on side early january and hopefully we're gonna actually go and do something over the next few games because obviously you've got that game's really important but then you've got your scottish cup game which is absolutely critical if we're not going to go to a major meltdown so i think it uh three points were ideal but let's just go and give them a good game and let's hopefully the four of us afterwards have got something that we can look at and think yep that's okay there's a lot to take out of that where you know we're we're in good shape for the rest of the season well the games come really thick and fast as well once we come back in after winter break so it's it is one of those where you kind of do want to build a bit of momentum up and you kind of don't want to start on a, on a, a losing foot so to speak because you could very quickly find yourself with how tight the league is this season you could very quickly find yourself you know struggling again whereas a few wins string them together we could be right back, right back in the mix for that kind of. I think third is probably a bit beyond us right now, based on just how many points ahead Hearts are. Fourth is absolutely there for the taking. I think at the moment, um, you know, it could really build some momentum going into that. Looking at that game, then predictions. It's a hard one to do after like a, such a, a layoff as well. Yeah, and and not not quite sure if what what shape squads are going to be like for any number of reasons. Uh, I'll I'll go for a hopeful two one win. Yes. Like it. Goal scorers. We don't just piss about here. Uh, Ross McCrory and Scott Brown. Nice. I think I would just go back to that point about third place being perhaps out of reach. I'm sure five games ago, fourth seemed out of reach. And it's, I think, I think it plays to what Tom says of how weak the league is overall. I think that, yeah, you could go easily on a run and reel hearts in because I think I look at hearts, they've got 10 wins from 20. And it feels like 10 of those must have come quite early. Yeah, they did. They did. So they're not in any great shape. But um, when it comes to Rangers, yeah, it's so hard to say because of so many things could change between now and then. Um, I'll go ahead and say it will be a 1-1 draw. Goal scorer, will Dante be available for them? If he's got a visa. 
will he have to like would he have to quarantine and all that good stuff uh, i don't know if dante's available dante what's his surname Pulvara. <laughs> dante Pulvara. yeah or palava as i think somebody saw it today dante Pulvara with the yeah. go excellent yeah. love it to then do the stupid Ronaldo celebration that he appears yeah. to enjoy. Yeah, no, no, needs to get that in the bin. Um, Graham? Well, I was going to rip off what Gavin's done. Um, I was going to go one each with Dante, but given that he's taken that from me, I still fancy one each, but I'm going to say, let's say Ramirez. You've gone really balls out there, Graham, with that. <laughs> well, I am the wild one for the takes. So. That's it. Fuck it. 3-1 Aberdeen. Um, two on goals by Scott Wright. And Jet with the goal, which means we have to buy those T-shirts. After all, there we go. Let's move on. And that wraps up part one of this week's show. Join us after the break for the latest in our line of exclusive in-depth interviews with Don's personalities of past and present. Join us this week. It's a man who joined Aberdeen on loan in the summer of 2013 and made 22 appearances in a red shirt, scoring one goal. It's Michael Hector. And to play us out this half, it's The Ruckus with Hangman from their recent album about... Ruckin' Time. Follow The Ruckus on Facebook and their album is available in all your usual streaming locations.
episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you by Wowsy Aberdeen. Import and UK confectionery, snack and soda specialists offering Aberdeen's largest selection of goodies from around the world. Wowsy are a local independent family business and are based in St Andrew Street, Aberdeen. An unrivaled choice for your sweet tooth needs. With all allergens catered for, nationwide delivery and great customer service, it's got to be Wowsy. Welcome back to the APZ Football Podcast. It's time now for our exclusive in-depth interview with a man who joined Aberdeen on loan in 2013. And despite his stay being a short one, he made a definite impression on the Red Army. It's Michael Hector. Michael Hector, welcome to the ABZ Football Podcast. How's it going, mate? Yeah, good, thank you. Good, thank you. All's well. Listen, Michael, we are really appreciative of you taking the time out from your busy schedule with uh, Fulham to talk to us. It's, it's massively appreciated. And let's just go back to the start, I guess, for you. Uh, born in East Ham in London in, in 1992. And your dad, Pat, was a cricketer with Essex, I was reading. So sporting prowess is a bit of a familial trait. Was cricket ever going to compete with you for your time with football? Uh, it actually did until I was about probably 13, 14. And it got a little bit too serious for my liking. So um, I was playing county cricket for Essex as well. And uh, yeah, I just didn't enjoy it. So um yeah, I just obviously stopped playing cricket uh, seriously. I played with my friends and stuff, uh, obviously at school and stuff like that. But yeah, I always loved football and I, that's what I wanted to be. And just on the cricket field though, what was your what was your strength as a cricketer? Uh, I was an all-rounder. I did a bit of everything. But obviously when you play with top players, it, it got a bit frustrating because obviously uh, school and club cricket, I play, I open the bowl and open the batting. And then obviously when you get to like the, the county level, it was more probably third change uh, bowling and then probably six or seven batting. So it was a bit, it was tough to, I, that's, probably that's why I didn't enjoy it as much because I wasn't in the, involved in the game as much and it's more just fielding and stuff like that. So at a young age, you just want to just want to play and have, enjoy it. And I, I didn't really do that when I got to county level. So then moving to your other love, football. Growing up, who was the team that you supported? Uh, I actually supported Chelsea growing up. Uh, my family are... On my mum's side are, are from Fulham way, so they're either Fulham fans or Chelsea fans. So, um, yeah, they, they obviously, my mum's a Man United fan, but most of my family <laughs> obviously Chelsea or Fulham. So, yeah, I chose obviously Chelsea growing up and yeah, I've been a Chelsea fan ever since. So I'm just thinking your age, you're kind of talking when Chelsea start buying some pretty good players. Who was your, uh, your childhood idol? Uh, Gianfranco Zola was the, the one that I obviously my first like footballing memories, that was the person that was uh, the one who like got me into supporting Chelsea. He was like obviously so uh, good with the ball and stuff like that. And yeah, at that age, I, I was like a striker. So yeah, them type of players I was looking at to, to, to copy. Well, you've just answered my next question in a way there. Um, so you said you were an all-rounder on the cricket field. You were a striker in your younger days. When did you kind of make that move back into a more defensive role? Obviously, growing up playing Sunday League, I was a striker. And then obviously as I got older, I obviously went into midfield and that was where I was playing as when I was in college. From there, I got into obviously like an academy and stuff where I was playing centre mid. And then probably 16, 17, I got moved back into centre back. And then obviously 
not moved back since, not moved from that position since. There's only one way to go further back, isn't there? Yeah, I do not want to be a goal. I play in goal in the, in the summer holidays, like just messing around with my mates. But yeah, no, nah, not professionally. I don't think I could do that, do the job. Was there any particular reason why you ended up getting moved, moved back? Was it more like at that age, were you more physically developed? The funny thing is some, uh, our defender got injured in one of the a game we played against Reading in like a, like a, um, like a friendly pre-season game at like the academy. And our centre-back got injured and the, the coach just said, oh, why don't you just try centre-back? So I was fuming because I, I was looking at the game as more of a trial. So I was playing centre-mid, I was playing well, and then I went and moved to centre-back and I played even better. So, yeah, it was just lucky that there was a, the first team manager for Reading and a few scouts were watching them. Yeah, I got scouted from there. It was, it was crazy. It's amazing how many times this happens. I mean, we spoke to um, the Scottish women's national team captain, Rachel Corsi, two weeks ago. And um, Rachel was the same. She was a midfielder, winger in her kind of younger days. And then I think it was injuries at Glasgow City, which was where she was at the time. And it was literally in training. I think the manager was like, I just need somebody to kind of sit here like a defender. You just have to be really passive, not really doing much. She did it, did such a good job at it. He was like, actually, I think you could probably be a centre half. And that's just where her career has been ever since now for that. You know, it's, it's funny how these things happen. So obviously after spells for you in the Millwall and the, the Thurrock youth uh, setups, you eventually signed scholarship terms with Reading in, in 2009. And pretty much straight away, Reading make the move to loan you out to Bracknell Town for a month uh, before another month's spell at Didkit. And then joining Havant and Waterlooville for a short loan spell in January 2010 as well. Did these loan spells just help you to get a feel for how things were going to be within the kind of senior setup at Reading? Yeah, obviously I was training with the like youth team. Then I moved into reserves, and then like first team at that probably that age each month. And I was it was just basically me training with Reading and then playing men's football on a Tuesday and and Saturday. So um, especially as I just started playing centre back, so they wanted me to be obviously <laughs> it was funny like I didn't like heading the ball that much so as a centre-back you need to have the ball so playing obviously non-league football that's what you're doing most of the time and your obviously your your combat skills and stuff like that where you're playing against players that have played a lot of games either high up in in the league or um like around the non-league circuit and it was tough obviously at the start um playing not great pitches but just having to like fight through certain situations obviously as a young player you want to be playing for Reading you want to be um, in the league, doing a loan in the league, but obviously my route was a bit different. It was a bit disheartening, but I, I loved every minute because of the banter side, and you you have to basically grow up a bit. And yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Well, maybe come on to that just in a minute or two, I guess, just about like the number of loan spells you had, because I think when you signed for Aberdeen, it was something that was quite obvious looking at your career at that point. But we'll we'll come on to that in a second. But obviously, after impressing in the reserves for Reading, doing well in these loan spells, Reading then reward you with your first professional contract in May of 2010. Now, like for yourself at that point, was that a kind of feeling of, okay, cool, I can do this. I can make a go of being a professional footballer. And now I just need to get my head down and really kind of crack on and see how far I can go here. Yeah, no, because when I first signed, it was only like a six-month contract. So yeah. it was basically just like, a, we're going to see how you do. And then from there, we'll review it at the end of the season and then we'll go from there and it. For me, it was basically just just getting my head down, working hard. I think at that time as well, it was like around the obviously around the Olympics, and there was like a, a day when they basically loads of football teams that players that were like could be released, could may not be, um, basically went and did like tr like testing and stuff like that. So I, I did that and stuff like that. So I was always thinking, if if it wasn't happen, maybe I'll do something else. And uh, yeah, for me, it was just basically just working hard and trying to get another contract, which I, obviously which I did. 
2010-11 season is another one where you spend large chunks of it on loan, an initial month spell at Oxford City, followed by a two-month spell at Horsham, grab your first career goal in your debut against Billericay Town. Uh, can you remember much about that? No, I, I don't remember the, the obviously the goal and stuff like that, but I, I just remember that obviously at Horsham, I, I met someone that I'm, I'm still friends with now, Jamal King, and uh, I just remember getting sent off, I think it was like three times, just for like, um, two of them were like retaliation. So it was basically like off the ball, uh, someone like going off, like, like an elbow with me reacting to it. And it was basically just like learning, obviously, how to react um, and, and stuff like not to react to certain situations. Obviously, I was a, a young kid and obviously senior players were trying to bully you. It was only yeah. like 17, 18 at the time. So it was, it was a time to like, I remember obviously, I need to grow up. I need to be more of a man, obviously, a centre-back is about consistency and um, you need to obviously be on the pitch because to help your team but yeah that was what that's the the most I remember from obviously Horsham and obviously not, not the goal side but more of the like the red cards well I think it's probably uh, important that you remembered that and uh, <laughs> learned from it and yeah took that forward moving on after your loan spell at Horsham comes to an end you then end up with a chance to go to Ireland on loan with Dundalk uh, until June 2011 did you need much in the way of persuasion to make that move? Because it's a bit of a big step moving from London to Ireland, isn't it? Yeah, I, I didn't have a choice, really. The the, the chief scout, uh, Steve Shorey, basically called me, I think it was like a Tuesday or something, Tuesday or Monday, and he just said, have you got a passport? I said, yeah. He said, okay, cool. You're going to Ireland tomorrow. You're going to sign for that. But I trust, because obviously he gave me the, the chance at Reading, I trusted. When he said to do something, I just trusted it. And uh, yeah, it's one of the best things I did, uh, moving to Ireland. I loved every minute of it and that's where I kind of grew from a kind of a young boy into a man that was my first time living basically in a flat having to pay rent bills having to try and cook and stuff like that that was obviously the first time where because obviously at Reading I was in digs so obviously you have the families to cook for you and stuff like that but yeah that was the first time where it was kind of like this is how it would be obviously if you if you become professional and obviously having to live on your own and having to like try and prepare meals uh, before a game and stuff like that. Was it a bit of a culture shock the move to Dundalk for you? Just because you know you, you grew up in London, Dundalk for anyone who's not familiar with it is kind of on the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. It's a it's a tiny wee place, Dundalk. Um, bit of a culture shock, bit of a, a bit of a change of scenery. Yes and no. It was to be fair, like it's it's like a family club which mm-hmm. I kind of liked, and I was not used to going to pubs and stuff like that. But there was probably a pub every three or four shops. It was crazy. Like, the, the amount of pubs that were in that area. And yeah. I was just basically to go to the, sometimes go to the pub, watch the Champions League or watch the football and, yeah, have obviously like a pub, uh, uh, like a Sunday roast and stuff like that. And it was, for me, everyone knew everyone and it was kind of, it was kind of nice. It was kind of different, but I, I enjoyed every minute of it. It was, it was obviously, it's a lot different to London. I'm not going to, not going to lie, but the the boys from that Dublin, Dublin's not far from there. It's yeah. probably like a 50 minute hour drive and, yeah, we had a lot of boys from Dublin and, they, and it's kind of like Londoners and it was, the band that was good. And yeah, the Irish people are very, very uh, welcoming and it was yeah, a very good time. Yeah, it's a brilliant part of the world. My wife's like family are, are from Northern Ireland. Um, so okay. we spent a lot of time going around that part of the country. It's a brilliant part of the world. And if you do find yourself a, a nice wee pub like that, though, it's, uh, it's well worth keeping. Yeah, no, no, definitely, definitely. <laughs> and it's a relatively successful spell for you at Dundalk. Uh, 14 appearances in all competitions for them. Got a couple of goals in at the bargain as well. I think I read that Dundalk were actually keen on on keeping you on loan for the rest of their season. Obviously, they run a summer season. Yeah, so something, yeah. So, um, but injury meant you ended up going back to Reading in June. But 
at this stage, having you know started to get regular appearances on loan, I, I probably a bit of a step up as well in the League of Ireland, impressing. What were the kind of conversations with you with Reading like at that point around making the break in at the kind of first team setup? Uh, for me, it was more just uh, the Irish League is probably like League One. The, the good because obviously at the time there was like Shamrock Rovers that were like kind of like in Europe, so they were they were doing quite well, and that game was kind of like a League One, top of League Two, and it and it was like basically from there, okay, can we now get you into the league in England, the, the lower leagues, League One or League Two, and and test you there and see how you do obviously there, and and that was the conversation. Obviously, I was injured at the time, so I had probably three months out. And uh, yeah, it was basically getting fit. And then my next loan would have been obviously a team in the league. So after you're making your way back to fitness, it's another loan this time with the then League Two side Barnet. And an impressive month spell. Your loan's extended for another month. And in December, it's extended to the end of the season. You featured regularly for the first team, making 31 appearances in total, scoring a couple of goals. And it sees you named their young player of the season, which also then leads to you to signing a new contract at Reading in the summer of 2012. I just wanted to ask, um, check this out. Was it Edgar Davids at Barnet at this time? No, it was Laurie, it was Laurie Sanchez. Laurie Sanchez. So Laurie, Laurie Sanchez was the, the manager and then uh, Martin Allen took over the last four games of the season to keep us up. That's right. Martin Allen, he, went, he, he kept going back to Barnet, didn't he? It was like yeah. four times he came in to save them or whatever. I was just wondering because Edgar Davids must have come in after that. Yeah, my friend played for, with Edgar Davids. Yeah, that was a, I, mean, I wish I would have been there for him because he, he sounded like an interesting character. I was, that's what I was thinking. I was hoping for an exclusive right there, but uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe next time. July 2012, next season, you've got that new deal with Reading, but it's another loan move to Shrewsbury Town for six months, but this is cut short. You know, you're finding it uh, hard to get in the team, so you return to Reading, play reserve football until the loan officially ended, and then you head back out on loan to Aldershot, where you impress. Uh, they wanted to keep you, I believe, but Reading were keen to take you back and then send you back out on loan to Cheltenham. And this is extended to the end of the season after a bunch of impressive performances. Ultimately, it's culminates in Cheltenham losing out to Northampton in the playoff semi-finals. Is that right? Yeah. At this point, as Gary's kind of mentioned earlier, you've been on loan an awful lot. What's your mindset like? Are you just like really thinking, I've got a lot of experience under my belt now. I've impressed, generally speaking, everywhere I've been. Now is this the time I really want to get in and get my chance of Reading? My goal was to play with the first team. That was the goal I set when I signed. But obviously for me, I just always wanted to play football. I was never one to like sit around and say, oh, I'm a Reading footballer, playing reserves, it's, it's comfortable, it's easy. I've always wanted just to play football. That's what I love to do. And people may look at my career and see all the clubs and be like, oh, is he a, uh, I don't know, bad apple? Or what's, what's his mindset to just keep going alone? But for me, it was just to play games. Looking back, sometimes it may look bad, but for me... I know in myself and obviously the, the clubs could speak for it. I, I was never like a, I was always a good professional and I've always just wanted to play games. That's, that was my goal. I just, I'm a footballer. I'm not going to sit around and just wait. I'm going to, I want to play games. And if my opportunity is not at that club, I'll go elsewhere and, and play football. That's my, my attitude towards it. You kind of did touch on it earlier on though. Was, was this around the kind of period where you were maybe getting a bit frustrated with not getting the chance to make the breakthrough at Reading? Yeah, but I think, at, especially at that time as well, they just probably wanted, I think, uh, Barnet year, they just won the championship. Yeah. So they went into the Premier League. I, I did well pre-season, but obviously I'm not, I've not played any, I play League Two football. So that's a big step up to go from League Two to obviously the Premier League. And um, yeah, for them, they wanted me to uh, obviously 
playing League One and then obviously hopefully playing the champ. But obviously, I didn't get much games at Shrewsbury and then I've obviously had to drop down to League Two again and then obviously climb back up. But um, yeah, for, for me, I never got disheartened. I've always knew that I could play for Reading, but it was just obviously the timing. They signed obviously a couple of centre-backs as well in the Premier, so it was going to be even tougher. But I knew if they come back down from the Premier League that I have a chance to obviously feature in the, in the Championship team. Yeah, definitely. Because as it then turns out, um, come the 26th of July, 2013, it's announced that you'd signed for Aberdeen on an initial six-month deal at that point. And yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of Aberdeen fans at the time when when you signed up, I think a lot of people probably looked at your 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 career history to that point. And you're right, you end up with like two questions in mind at that point, which is one, is it, as you say, maybe someone who's a, a bad apple, doesn't have the right mindset, etc. Or the flip side is the one you've just spoken about, which is it's, it's a guy who actually just wants to play football and wants to get out there and get games under his belt. And that in itself is a really good trait, I think. I think anyone that looks at your career and like tries to say the number of loans you had is a, is a negative, is a complete fallacy because it's you try to get out there and better yourself. And it's it's absolutely the right thing to be doing. But in terms of the move to to Aberdeen, can you remember like how that move kind of came about? And did you need much in the way of convincing to make the move up to Scotland. Yeah, it was it was it was kind of easy. Once I came to I obviously just came to um visit the the manager and once I come to the city, uh, as soon as I got to the stadium, I I, looked, I spoke to my dad and I said, "Yeah, I want to play here." The way the ground was it's, it's like an it's an old-fashioned ground and obviously I knew about the history of Aberdeen and stuff like that, but once you get there, you did from England you don't know how it's weird like how big Scottish football is. You only know obviously the old firm derby but Aberdeen, Hearts, Hibs, all these teams that nowadays don't not really spoke about in that type of in that light. And once I got to the stadium and I, and obviously I saw the city, I was like, yeah, I want to I want to sign here and I want to play my football here for however long I can. You've said you knew the history of Aberdeen. What exactly did you know about Aberdeen, the city, and yeah, Scottish football? Obviously, I knew about the Alex Ferguson when obviously the the league and stuff like that and, and being the, the team to obviously break up the, the old firm uh, dominance and that was something that for me growing up I, I was uh, it's, in England it's like you have a Rangers or Celtic so it wasn't like a, I supported Aberdeen I was I was more Celtic but obviously coming to, to Aberdeen it was like it was weird it was just like now I'm an Aberdeen so now I, I look for the Aberdeen results and stuff like that and it was like yeah it was it was interesting when I got here how big Scottish football is Obviously, down south, you just obviously know about the two teams, and it, it was it was when you when you got here and when you saw like the stadium and, and you and you just feel the history straight away, and you, the fans are amazing. Like when the way they travel, obviously across Scotland, they they just want they just love football, and that was the thing where yeah, I didn't realize how big it was until I got to obviously start playing. You made mention that meeting the manager was also important, and you decided to come up here. It's Derek McInnes's first summer transfer window in charge of Aberdeen. Can you tell us, it's something that comes up with a lot of his ex-players that they just talk very positively. Can you tell us a little bit about him and what it is that makes him such a, seemingly such a good man-manager, especially? For me, he was a, he's such an honest man. Like, that's the respect that I have because even, even I still message him. I still sometimes, obviously he's not in job now, but I was still messaging when he was doing well, results were going well, and obviously when the, the carpet and stuff like that. And for me, at my, my time with him, he was just straightforward and honest, which I've obviously played under a lot of managers where they tell you what they, what you want to hear and they 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 say things to keep you at the club or to make you want to stay and, and do. But he was so straightforward and honest. He would say, you come up, like, you, you took me out of the team one time. 
and said, you need to train better. You need to do this. I wasn't happy with this. And if you do this, you play. I do this, the, what he wants me to do, then I start playing again. But sometimes in football, people are not honest. There's, there's a lot of dishonest people in football. And for me, he was one of the guys that was was a man and was honest and just said how it, how it is. And sometimes you didn't want to hear it, but it, it's going to make you a better player. And he said that if you listen to me and stuff like that, you'll become a better player and you go on to the next level. And for me, that's why... I, at the time, they may think, oh, he's bitty. Why is he always on me? Why is he... But when you look back at it, there's a reason why. And it's because he wanted the best. And I enjoyed... He's one of the best managers I've worked with because of that. Because he was so honest and he was so passionate of in the game as well. Just on that point as well, because you, you kind of spoke about becoming aware of the history of Aberdeen, the club and everything. When Derek first came in, um, and this is his first you know summer in, in charge at, at Pataudry, Derek kind of came in and he seemed to want the club, want everyone in the club to recognise the club's past and to kind of not be scared by it, but kind of be inspired by it, which was a little bit of a, for a number of managers in the run-up to Derek coming in, and a lot of managers seemed to be quite scared of the history of Aberdeen Football Club and they kind of shied away from it a lot. Was that something as well that you guys felt in the dressing room? There was that level of let's be inspired by what's happened to this club in the past. Let's not shy away from that. Yeah, I think he was big with that because obviously... The fans, like, they wanted success. They wanted something to, to, like, obviously the cup final and stuff like that. They wanted, like, days like that mm-hmm. to get behind the team. And he, he was big on, basically, like, we've got the fans behind us. Right? We need to just push and, like, keep pushing. And, and you, never, you never know where you can take us. And if and the confidence that the, the team had the year I was there was, yeah, it was good. The team spirit. We used to go dinners probably every Thursday. We did... When I, like the the start of the thing, there was like a barbecue. Start of the season, there was like a barbecue. We did like golf days um, at St. Andrews and stuff like that. And it was really like interesting because I've never like really done that at most many teams I've been at. We we did so many team bonding exercises that I've never done at clubs. And he was good with the team. It's all about the team and it's all about the togetherness. And obviously if, you, if you're good friends or if you're, you know the players that you're playing with, you're going to run that extra yard. You're going to, you're going to, help him if he makes a mistake you're not gonna it's not gonna be like clicky and stuff like that and I think that was what we had we had a good balance of senior players and obviously younger players at the time when I was there absolutely the same day you sign for Aberdeen you actually make your debut in a friendly match that evening against the FC 20 at Pataudry and Aberdeen ran out 2-0 winners that night what were your kind of first impressions just of your new teammates and then you've kind of touched upon your first impressions of Pataudry as a ground as well but actually just getting to play there under the lights for the first time as well yeah, no, the first, obviously, um, I think that was the day I flew in that day. Yeah, I flew in that day, signed, and then obviously the game, and it was just like, yeah, it was it was crazy. It was just like the, the fans in there. Obviously, it wasn't full, but yeah, you can see that it was like a it was like a like a proper football club. Do you know what I mean? It was like it just it just smelled right. It just everything was just like, yeah, this is where I want to play. This is like the atmosphere was was good, and obviously we played good football on that, on that night and. Yeah, I, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm buzzing that I've signed it. And I'm like, obviously, I think I went home probably the next day and I was just like, I can't wait to get back. That's all I was thinking. I just, yeah, I can't wait to get back and get started and, and obviously get to know my teammates and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was tough. Obviously, obviously I never met, I met them that night and, and played, but yeah, it was, yeah, I loved it. Very uh, refreshing to hear someone say that because a proper football club is not how you could describe Aberdeen for a few years before you joined. No. No, no. <laughs> um, the following weekend, it's the opening SPFL Premiership match of the season at home against Kilmarnock. Um, you came off the bench late to help Aberdeen win 2-1. Uh, a Willow Flood diving header, from what I recall. A beauty. Yes. 
And then the next week you get your first start in a 3-1 win away at Fir Park as the Dons season and the Derek McInnes era is up and running. You've made mention that, you know, maybe you weren't quite so aware of Scottish football. What were your impressions of the actual standard of Scottish football? Yeah, I think at that time it was it was not um, like it was a lot of young players, a lot of young players coming through, but good young players. And yeah, I, I obviously, I thought obviously the level was very, was very good at, obviously at that time. And I felt that there was just a lot of good young players coming through. And I was just, I was just surprised with obviously the stadium, stuff like that. And like how big games, like every time we played, there was just, it just felt like a great, good atmosphere. In it. And and obviously down south, we don't really, they don't really talk about Scottish football like that. That's the, the most I took away from it. It's just like the atmosphere was just, like, it was crazy. I think obviously we played Celtic at home and then we played Hearts the next um, game away. And I was just like, yeah, this is like proper football. This is proper football. And I was just like, it was just, everything was just, yeah, it was just really, really good. And I was, yeah, just couldn't wait to keep keep playing and keep going to the next stadium. And just, it was different. It just felt different, but it felt good at the time. It's very interesting. So we've had one or two constructive conversations on Twitter with um, fans in England, mainly Newcastle fans lately. The term Farmers League gets banded around a lot. Would you uh, would you debunk that for us? No, yes. It's not, it's not a Farmers League. It's not a Farmers League. But that's the thing. I think... People like they don't understand obviously because they've not been up to watch the game or they've not been to the, obviously watching on TV is different. But I think once you go to the games and actually watch it in the stadium, I think you would, you would think differently. And I think that's what my friends also my friends come up to watch games at Todri and it, and they come away thinking, oh, this is like this, the stadium like they was buzzing, the buzzing to be in the city and the stadium and the football was was what they weren't expecting. So yeah, I think obviously when you when you're looking from afar. It's easy to say that it's a it's a cheap kind of label, but I think once people come and watch the games, then yeah, they will they will understand it. And obviously, the money in the in the Scottish league is not as big as obviously the, the English Premier League. So the players that they can kind of attract is always it's never going to be the same. They're always going to have to attract younger players and be more clever with the scouting. So I think that's what's different. Yeah, and I think I guess the technical level is probably not well, it's definitely not going to be the same. But I guess in terms of like commitment and blood and guts and thunder and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. It's probably right up there, I would imagine, in the intensity of it. But I think that's what's always going to happen. I think each year that the, the, the TV money's so much bigger in, obviously, in England, the gap's always, always going to grow. So I think that's the problem where, yeah, once they sort that out, then obviously it will come closer and obviously they'll, they'll get better players. In. At the same sort of time, how were you finding, you know, settling into life in, in Aberdeen, the city itself as well at that period? Yeah, no, I, I was actually fine. I was probably in Union Square. Yeah, so Union Square, the shopping, the shopping center. I was there most most times watching watching a film or going for food and stuff like that. So for for, for me, it was quite it's quite easy. It was just basically the city was was easy to get around. It wasn't it wasn't like hard to get around it. And and also like the, the airport to to London is uh, the flight is probably an hour if that. Yeah. So it was it was quite easy for like friends and family to come and visit. And yeah, it was. It was very easy to settle in. Obviously, the, the days we had out, like the team bonding, I got to know the players quite quickly. We've messed around on the golf course. It was quite fun for like a day. So, yeah, it was it was good. And obviously, the, the chairman did a few barbecues at his house. So, the players got to know the staff. And, yeah, I got to, to meet people in not just in a footballing setting, but obviously away from it, which was good. And you kind of just touched on it there, but were there any kind of particular players in the squad at the time that you kind of were quite close with or that really helped you with, with settling in? Uh, obviously, you got Josh McGuinness, who's crazy. So he kind of, yeah, he kind of like helped me through. And obviously, Calvin Zola, he signed obviously that year. So he was kind of like new 
teammates. So we kind of obviously sat together on the coach and, and yeah, we roomed together. So it was kind of easy to, to get closer to him because obviously we, we were new to the club and it was just, yeah, finding friends and stuff like that. So yeah, it was good. Josh is a big character. Yes. You must have a couple of stories you can tell us about Josh. Uh, and don't worry, this this, this podcast uh, has an explicit rating on it, so okay. you're right there. Okay, there, okay. There was one one morning. There's like a toilet, and it faces as you walk into the building, uh, like through the kit room. And he basically just used to sometimes just have a have a number two with the door open, <laughs> and just, just talking to people as they walk past. And that was my first meeting of him. And I was like, "What is going on here? What have I, like?" That was one of his. That's a story. I'll, I'll tell that story. The rest are a bit too. Yeah. They're a bit too X-rated. Yeah, he, oh, he does man. some crazy. He does some crazy things, but yeah, that's probably one of the things I could say. <laughs> we'll let you off. We'll let you off. So you're clearly now becoming a first team regular. You keep your spot for the following weekend's visit of Celtic, and a nearly sold out Petardry is in boisterous mood to begin with, looking to maintain a fine start to the season. Can you remember much about the atmosphere of that game with Celtic Petardry? Yeah, it was very, very, very. It was very good. I I enjoyed it. The atmosphere because it was. It was just loud. It was very loud. Obviously, they were like, Celtic fans were obviously chucking like bangers and flares or whatnot and stuff like that. And it was, it was obviously when they scored, it went even crazier. But yeah, I, the atmosphere was good. I enjoyed it. And it was a tough game, obviously, because they were a good team, obviously a very good team then. So yeah, it was always going to be a tough game. But yeah, I enjoyed enjoyed the game and it was good. You, um, you spent a lot of your time at Aberdeen when you were in the team, kind of being partnered alongside Russell Anderson. Um, at the centre of defence. How much of an influence was Russell on you, do you think, just in terms of your own development as a player? Yeah, obviously he was very, very experienced and obviously captained the side very well. And he was someone you could just just talk to just on a, on a, on a day-to-day basis anyway. Any problems like you had, he just always knew what to kind of say and he was always calm. It was even, even if it was off-the-field stuff, he would just always just know what to do and how to do it. So it was... Yeah, he was a he was a very cool guy, and yeah, I, I don't really obviously speak to him after my time there, but yeah, I was happy obviously to that he obviously won the cup, and obviously got to lift it. So that was a that was a big thing for him. That's a nice segue. the The league cup is the defining moment of that season. Um, you start the majority of the games, and that includes a five 0 victory at Falkirk uh, away. It's one of the finer performances of Aberdeen's season, really. Um, can you remember much about the game? I just remember the, the fake pitch. Oh the, man. I just I just remember playing on that and my knees were in bits after, but it was, yeah, it was just a, it was a good performance. I, just, I remember that it was a good performance, but it was just yeah, the pitch was just so weird that I couldn't get. But the thing is, I played in Ireland with uh, Dundalk's home pitches is obviously plastic as well. So yeah, I thought I got away from plastic pitches and then I come to Scotland and I, the cup was a, was something that we they, they we targeted at the start of the season. That was something where we we felt obviously we can we can challenge and. It's a one-off game, so a one-off game. So we felt that we could, yeah, go quite far in. Nicky Lowe was telling us after that game that he was raging because he should have scored and he wasn't happy. And I think he ended up getting a clip around the ear from the manager in the dressing room after, you know, because it's like, just shut the fuck up, mate. Like, you've we've won 5-0. What are you complaining about? Nicky Lowe is one of the best trainers I've ever trained with. Yeah. One of the best trainers. Like, some of the things he used to do in training, I was thinking, oh, like... I'll never forget, it just always used to score well, D. Always used to, like... <laughs> he's chirpy as well, yeah. He's very, very chirpy. Very, very... Yeah, very mouthy. And I think he... I think he was Doc. He always used to get on Doc's nerves. That was the <laughs> one thing. He used to, like... His banter was just... He's just always just talking. So, yeah. He was one of them where... 
it's just always like something to say. It always has something to say, a little bit of banter and stuff like that. So, yeah, the, the group was very good. The group was like yeah. very like the banter was good. The the stuff we used to do in training was fun and like off the field was banter and stuff like that. So it was good, good group of lads. Yeah, no arguments. Nicky Lowe, great wee player. Um, very happy to see him back doing well these days. Also, that game, I remember your mate Calvin Zola. I think he got hooked after about half an hour because he was gonna get sent off. But he was amazing and he just noised them up so much they just couldn't get over it. And it's like, in my mind, he probably should have got mad the match that day. Yeah, no, for, for me, he's one of like on his day he was just unplayable. Like he was so awkward to to, to train against. I played against him when he was at Burton. I just remember him just just being so awkward and some of the things he used to do he just used to pin people down he could flick it he had a good touch and then there were some days other days you, you like wouldn't be able to control the ball and it was just like things like that it was just like yeah he was frust- sometimes frustrating to play with but then sometimes he was like so easy so easy to play with and you could just clip a ball up anyhow and you just pin it down or you do something and bring players into play and it was yeah for me he was a very good striker that he could have done more I think I feel at the club I think he could have done more was it just that inconsistency, you think, that just killed him? Because I, I agree with you. I think there were, there were times, the Falkirk game, that first 30 minutes, he was unplayable. Mm-hmm. And I remember an opening 30 minutes, I think, for Hill against Partick Thistle. I think he scored his first goal for Aberdeen that day. And he was really, really good in that first 30 mm-hmm. minutes. But then, as you say, the following week, it would maybe be the balls bouncing everywhere. Yeah, I think it's just I think it's just confidence. I yeah. realise in football, it's, it's a confidence thing. Once you, once you feel like you're the man... At a club, or especially a striker, if once you're the man, you, you can you can score goals from anywhere. It could come off your your knee and go in, and and I think that's the type of things that he can't he kind of was missing at the start of his time there. I think, and I think yeah, that's a, it's a big thing for a striker, just to, especially at a new club, you just want to start scoring straight away and and get the fans on your side. And I think that's what he kind of didn't do that, and that's what kind of like knocked his confidence a little bit, which is is understandable as a striker. Moving forward in the cup, um, we go to Fir Park to play Motherwell in the quarterfinal. You missed out though. Um, can you remember why that was? Did I miss that? According to my research, or you did? Yeah, missed the quarterfinal. I think I can't fathom why because you played the week before and the week after, so I didn't think it was an injury thing. But maybe it was. I don't know. It's the game that Joe that Shaughnessy gets sent off after about six minutes. I think I was injured. Yeah. Yeah, I was injured. I think I was injured. Because I wasn't, was I in the squad? I wasn't in the squad. I wasn't in the squad. Don't think you were in the squad. No, I don't think so. Yeah, I think I was injured. Well, there we go. We can move on yeah. to that question then. <laughs> that, that's a very, very straightforward answer on that one. Um, we'll move forward though. 4th of November, home fixture against Partick Thistle. Under the lights. Don's 2-0 up and cruising. The ball breaks to Johnny Hayes, I think. It was a breakdown off of a free kick. He just rolls the ball into the path of a centre half who's taken a bit of a I think you must have been up for the corner or the free kick, I think. Yeah, the free kick, yeah. There's a nice little chop back on at the right foot. And um, well, do you want to take it from here? Yeah, it was a nice strike into the uh, <laughs> kind of the corner of the net. Uh, keeper was rooted. Did a he little was. Dance. <laughs> he was. He just watched it go straight past and didn't even die for it. I think he wasn't expecting me to shoot. I think he was expecting me to like cross it or dink it back in the back post, I think. I don't think he was expecting me to shoot. So yeah, it was good. It was good because I think it was a, t- it was a TV game. It was a Friday night TV game, yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, so a lot of people were watching it back home. Got a lot of phone calls and text messages after the game. My best mate was up with my my girlfriend. And yeah, it was it was good. It was a good uh, good moment for me to do that on, at that time. Nice set of dance moves as well to celebrate it, as I recall. Yeah, a few people weren't happy with it at the, at the time. But yeah, I did that for my first league goal, so I thought I'll do it. Ah, it was pre-planned. I like it. 
like yeah, it. No, I, no, it wasn't kind of pre-planned, but uh, it just it just felt right to do at the time. It was there. Yeah, good. I like it. It's good. It's a great strike, an absolute beauty. I was gonna say, I think you might have been playing right back that night. No, I went right back and then got an assist. I think because that, I was going to say you turned into a kind of a, mar- a marauding uh, Danny Alves esque run down the right flank and you pop one beautifully on Anel McGinn's foot to smash the past keeper for four nil. Yeah, I moved. I think I played about three three positions. I played like we played in the two, then I played in a three man uh, back in a five kind of back line, and then I went right back towards it. But just so many skills. That's what it is, man. Yeah, I thought that probably got me another contract already in that, that game. <laughs> <laughs> um, going back to the goal, where does that one sit in your uh, in the rankings for your for your best goals? Yeah, that's got to be that's got to be my best goal as a professional player. Not a bad one to have. Yeah. At that time, you know you're playing really well. The Aberdeen fans have taken to you almost instantly. Were there any talks at this point about extending your deal beyond January? Yeah, no, I, we were speaking all the time. Um, with Derek and I wanted to stay. It wasn't like it wasn't like anyone didn't know that I, I, I wanted to stay and, and obviously it wasn't down to me. It wasn't obviously it wasn't down to me. The Reddy wanted me to to obviously go back there and, and obviously I didn't have a contract at Reading at the end of the season. So they wanted me to obviously sign a new contract. So yeah, that was the reason why I had to go back to obviously Reading. I wanted to stay because obviously we're doing well. Obviously we're still in a cup and yeah that was obviously something that I wanted to be a part of. And, Obviously, sadly, it wasn't to be. Yeah, we'll touch on. I mean, you stay as a an ever present in the in the Aberdeen side right the way through the November and the December. Um, at that point as well, I think Reading had quite a bad injury crisis. I think at, at that time, and I guess combined with your good form, meant that Reading were keen to to get you back. You bow out with a final appearance for Aberdeen at Rugby Park, a one nil uh, win for Aberdeen, courtesy of a Mark Reynolds header late in the game. Uh, you were pretty emotional. At the end of the game, as as I recall, as you kind of soaked up the farewells of the of the Red Army, can you just can you remember what was kind of going through your mind at, at that point? Yeah, because I knew before the game, I knew like that would be my probably my last game unless something dramatic happened, unless like they signed something. So I knew that was my last game, and I, and I didn't really want it to be my last game. But yeah, it was just like it was just weird. I just felt like I wanted to stay, and it and it was just like I had no control. Yeah, it's one of the things where. I really wanted to stay and it was just like, I can't do nothing, nothing about it. And I, and I, and I hope that people knew that I wanted to stay and it, it was it was down to the club to, to obviously bring me back. And we obviously had loads of discussions. Obviously the manager spoke to Red and said like, like we can't win, let's keep him. And then if you desperately need him, you can recall him and have that in the clause and stuff like that. But yeah, they just wanted him to come back. So, um, and, it, and then it, on the other hand, it was like, my goal was to play for Reading and this was a good opportunity to play. Yeah. So it was kind of like, I wanted to stay, but it was not a bad, it wasn't like, it was terrible. I was going somewhere else or I was going back to Reading to to kind of help the first thing, which was what my goal was. Yeah, it's, it's a very different scenario to what happened to Aberdeen a couple of seasons later where Danny Ward got recalled by Liverpool in the January window and sat in the reserves for Liverpool for the next six months, which was a real galling thing for Aberdeen fans because he'd done so well for us that mm. they just decided to take him back and didn't use him. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of these things, isn't it? It's, it's not, it's completely out with your control. I was just going to say, and I remember this now that you were out of contract at the end of that season because I remember bringing you in in that version of, well, manager <laughs> uh, for Aberdeen. And you did, and you did a hell of a good job, by the way. Um, was there any chat at all about even possibly signing a pre-contract with Aberdeen? No, 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 no. Reading, I think Reading, we was probably negotiating the whole of 
that half of the season, the contract. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And so I, I think Redden kind of. I, I don't. I didn't. Everybody never offered a contract in in that sense. Anyway. So. Okay. Um, yeah. I think Reading, I was always going to try and sign, obviously sign a contract at Reading. So, yeah, as you say, you're recalled um, Reading, they've got a pretty severe injury crisis and you make your debut. So you achieve your goal of uh, playing first team football. Uh, you come on as a sub and a 7-1 win over Bolton before getting your first start away at Brighton and Hove Albion. Eventually, you make nine appearances in total for Reading in that second half of the season. And then you sign your new deal. You've mentioned this already. I kind of think we already know the answer. You must have been very happy to be getting first-team appearances at Reading, but were you also a bit gutted to be missing out on the semi-final and the final for Aberdeen? Yeah, obviously I watched the watched the game on TV, the semi-final, and then obviously went to the, the final, and it was it was obviously weird because obviously knowing that you could have been playing them games and and not, and then obviously come to the, going to the final with my my dad and my brother, I was obviously buzzing. Obviously won, but I was like gutted in one aspect because I. That would have been like the atmosphere and obviously the celebrations after it was just like not to be a part of it was just yeah, it was gutting. But I was buzzing for the boys to that they obviously achieved it and obviously for Ross to obviously get his hands on the trophy. Terrible game of football, right? So <laughs> it was it wasn't yeah, it wasn't the greatest, but yeah. Kind of be sure that was 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 nerve wracking. That was not nice to watch. It was my stag do, mate. And um, yeah. you basically had over twelve of us. The game went on for so long, we all sobered up. During the <laughs> during the game, the hangovers started to kick in as the penalty shootout started. <laughs> Terrible stuff. Yeah, that was not good to watch. <laughs> You're not the only um, ex player that was like in attendance, um, kind of representing Aberdeen that day. Um, plenty of players were. Does an occasion like that just bring home to players who are maybe not from Aberdeen or maybe from Scotland? Just show how big a club Aberdeen is and the potential that it has. You bear in mind also about forty three thousand fans in that stadium that day. No, that's what I mean. It took over the whole stadium. There was like, it was crazy. It was just all red. And it was like, just watching like, as soon as I walked into the stadium and I saw it just all red and I was just thinking, ah, oh, it's crazy. Like, it's actually crazy. Like, the, but every every away game, it was always like sold out. It was all like, wherever we played, it was just like, the volume was just, was just crazy. And I just, yeah. Obviously, with my friends coming to the game, stuff like that, they always said like, how big, the club was like the size of the club, the fans. It was a sleep, a sleeping giant, and that that day just showed as well what celebrations after that how big the club is. Did you manage to get in on the celebrations with the squad after, or were you straight back down the road? No, straight on a on a flight back, and I'm I'm kind of gutted I didn't, and but also it's a it's a weird one celebrating as well because you you don't feel a part of it. Like you are a bit a part of it, but you don't. You're not a part of it really. When you, if you're not in the squad, then you're not played and stuff like that. In the final, you're not really a part of the. Yeah, I tell you, it didn't stop Josh though. He was on loan at St. Mirren at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, no, he got he got a lot. Of, he got a lot of stick for that. I'm not gonna lie. He got a lot of, a lot of stick from the boys. But yeah, no, he, that's that's him though, isn't it? Yeah, that's Josh. He's, yeah, he's he's a, he's a wild one. You missed out as well on getting to um, stiff Barry Robson on the team bus home. I think Barry had to put the credit card behind the uh, the till in Tesco, I think, for the booze run home. He, what a guy. Do you know, the, the, it was weird. The first time I spoke to, like, properly sat down with him was on a Christmas do. <laughs> and we just spent, the, like, it was the night next to me. And it was just like, I, he was such a funny guy. And I just like, I wish I spoke to him earlier. Because like, obviously I, I wasn't there, like, after Christmas do. And then probably a few more matches, a few more weeks in, and I was gone. So, yeah, that was, like, one of the, one of my memories where, I was like, 
I wish I'd like got it, got to know him properly, obviously before the Christmas too. And it's just one of those things where the way you sit in the change room and stuff like that, and on the coach, you don't really have a deep chat with certain players. And yeah, he was one of the players that I wish I spoke to more because he has obviously so much knowledge of the game and. Yeah, and, and doing well at the moment as um, Aberdeen's uh, under-18 reserve manager. Doing really well, actually, impressing in, in that role. Uh, the 2014-15 campaign for you sees you impressed for Reading. You really get you know really get going in the first team there, and that sees Chelsea snap you up at the end of the summer window for uh, just shy of £5 million before then loaning you back to Reading for the, for the following season. Uh, you obviously said earlier on you were a boyhood Chelsea fan. Just talk to us about the moment for you hearing that Chelsea were looking to sign you and then when that all went through yeah it was weird because I was supposed to go Palace oh really yeah I was supposed to go Crystal Palace and I think Redding, Palace wanted me to go basically to, to play for them they wanted me then and there to sign deal and but Reading wanted me to be bought and loaned back because I okay. think that year we wanted to try and push for like playoffs and, and promotion so and the squad we had was very good and the manager said no we we don't want to just sell him. We wanted so that was from like the start of the transfer window all the way up until deadline day. And they finally agreed the day before that I would sign and go back on loan till Jan. Okay. And then Chelsea come in deadline day. My dad gets a phone call. He like walks out of the room, comes back in and says, basically, Chelsea want to sign you. So that was when I was like, ah. But then I need to phone Alan Pardew and tell him that I'm not going to be signing because the medical and all that was sorted for... Palace was all sorted and it was just basically me doing the medical. So basically I had to call him obviously the next morning and tell him that I'm not going to be signing for you, I'm going to Chelsea, which was something that I had to do obviously because yeah, it's the right thing to do and obviously respect not just to like leave him hanging so he can probably sign someone else or you don't know what yeah, else he had in plan. So yeah, signing for Chelsea was yeah, surreal. It was un- unbelievable. I doubt Alan Pardew would have been like boogieing after that <laughs> phone call from you. No, it was a. It, it's probably one of the worst phone calls I've had to do. If I'm honest, that was not a nice uh, chat. But he understood. I told him the reasons why I'm a Chelsea fan. Like, I can't turn this down. Yeah, there's probably Chelsea, other teams in the world, Real Madrid, and stuff. Teams like that that you just, I just can't turn. You never turn down. And that's my boyhood team. And yeah, I want to sign for them. So at this point, you've achieved your goal of getting in the first team at Reading. You've signed for your boyhood heroes. And then at the end of the 2015 campaign, you also make your international debut for Jamaica, uh, a 1-0 defeat to Uruguay in the Copa America, where you're tasked with the small matter of marking one Edison Cavani. No bother, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Talk us through your decision to represent Jamaica rather than England and how proud a moment it was for you and your family to, to play international football. Yeah, my, my dad has drummed into me from a young age to play for Jamaica. He played cricket uh, youth for England. And uh, he, he said to me, if you ever become a footballer, you're going to play for Jamaica. That is it. I know. So I've been obviously, and to be fair, from that time, I've probably been waiting for, to represent them for about three years, sorting out a passport okay. and stuff like that. So there was a lot of behind the scenes that took a long time to that process to, to get up until then. So I would, hopefully I would have done it a lot earlier. But yeah, to, to go to the Copa America, which is such a massive tournament, um, obviously was invited to that tournament and the group we had was yeah it was unbelievable the, the games we had in that in that, in that that um, tournament so yeah to, to play against obviously Edis Convani who was one of the top European strikers at the time yeah it was tough and I thought the group we had was tough but we'd we done very well and 
and I was obviously very proud. My family was um, was proud, and obviously my dad was very emotional. So yeah, it was it was something that I've a goal that I, I, t- I ticked off to play international football, and yeah, it was good to to finally have done it. Just on that, I've always been very intrigued by this, and maybe you can shed some light on this, Michael. Like when you have a scenario where you know you could play for multiple different countries potentially, how does that work? Is it one of these scenarios where like like you, your reps, whatever would make contact with like the Jamaican football fed to be like, look, he's actually eligible. To- no, they, they, um, so they will make the contact. They, it's kind of like they do their research. Okay. And they kind of be like, like to me, they were like, you're on, obviously when I was at Reading, a lot of players were playing for Jamaica. Right. So they obviously would come to the, like the manager will come to the games and then after the games, we'll be speaking to the players and stuff like that in like the players lounge and, and stuff like that. And then obviously the manager would, and his reps would like pull obviously saw me in the players and pulled me to the side I said like obviously we know you're Jamaican we want you to play um, what like how do you would you like to would you want to be a part of the, the obviously the squad and then it's from there then it's like sorting out a passport and stuff like that because obviously I didn't have a Jamaican passport so yeah. obviously it's, it's getting like um, my grandparents stuff my dad's stuff and, and obviously sorting out a Jamaican passport okay cool I was just I've always been really intrigued by it because I always just can't imagine like all these football federations across the globe sitting there doing research on the hope that there might be this guy who might be eligible, you know? So that's, that's cool. It's good. It's good to get that, that understanding in there. In your second season at Chelsea, um, you're loaned out to Eintracht Frankfurt for the season where again, you impress. And uh, I think that the, the fans in Frankfurt really took to you as well. Did you enjoy that spell in Germany? And who yeah. was the toughest opponent you, you matched up against in the Bundesliga that season? Uh, Lewandowski, what a like, what a player! He's it's just yeah, he was one of the toughest strikers I I played against there, and obviously he had like Dortmund at the time. Uh, they were very like dynamic, very quick. Mm-hmm. They're like front three with Aubameyang, Dembele, and and Royce. But yeah, Bayern Munich. It was weird. Bayern Munich's team. We wasn't actually like for us that was like the easier game because they were quite an older team. They were very slow, like their build up and stuff like that. Yeah. Whereas Dortmund were very dynamic and just like fast pace and and yeah, they were like the team where like we wanted when we when we got to the final, we wanted Bayern Munich to win, to play them in the final kind of okay. kind of thing. Because we knew how tough Dortmund would be in the final because they're very in your face and they got so many players that can win a game. So yeah, the the, the fans there were like the stadiums, that's what that's one thing that I, I left when I after that year. The stadiums were all really good full every game obviously the ultras behind the goal are there two like three hours two three hours before the game like home games they're setting up the day before because we changed we used to change at the stadium so we could see them in the in the stand and okay. they would set up like the big like banners and stuff like that the day before and for me the home game felt like a cup final every game the stadium was like fifty thousand, and it's and it's full every week and the atmosphere was just yeah it was electric and it was good a season-long loans at Hull City and Sheffield Wednesday follow before you then make the permanent move from Chelsea to Fulham in January 2020. And you helped Fulham secure promotion to the Premier League, playing at Wembley in the playoff final against Brentford. Ultimately, Fulham were relegated after one season, uh, but under new manager Marco Silva, Fulham, they're currently top of the championship and looking good for an immediate return to the top flight. Are we safe to assume that promotion is the key objective for the season? Yeah, just the squad we have... Yeah, we have to touch wood, get promoted, and yeah, we're doing a we're doing a good job at the moment. Yeah, the the, the squad is like uh, the team that's not playing at the moment 
is very good. So, um, yeah, the squad of players we have, the manager has it as exposed, exposure or something like that. Um, yeah, he's very uh, good. And, yeah, he's like, yeah, we have a very good squad and, yeah, we're doing well. We, we can do, but we can do, the thing is we can play a lot better as well, which is the scary thing, but we're, we're still top. So, yeah, there's still more to come for us. I'm just gonna say um, another talking about another striker uh, that you'll be up against in training. What's Mitrovic like? Yeah, yeah, he's he is what he is. He scores a lot of goals. Uh, he's calmed down a lot. <laughs> what I saw of him, obviously, when he was younger at Newcastle, he's more, yeah. a little more mature. But yeah, he's in the Championship. He seems to obviously score a hell of a lot of goals and. Yeah, that at the moment he's on twenty plus goals. It's not even halfway through the season. So, yeah, we we are in training. It's a funny thing you don't don't score as many goals in training. It's it's, it's weird. So um, it's presumably because of the centre halves who are marking him, eh, Michael? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, but yeah, no, he he just yeah he just always seems to score. Obviously, when we drop down to the championship, but obviously in the Premier League, it's tougher. The, the, the centre backs are on a, on a different level. So yeah, but he's obviously scored a lot of goals for the club. And uh, yeah, he's our main man, and hope that continues. On a personal level, for yourself, Mike, what's your kind of aims for the re- for the remainder of the season? Uh, to start playing more games, I, I, I had a little run, probably two, a few weeks back. Obviously, played three games because I, I got injured, but um, Senaba got um, suspended. So I think at the moment we've won a, uh, a little run of four uh, draws. So I'm obviously hoping now to get my chance back in the team, and and yeah. And, kick on and have another run in the team like I did the, the last time you got to my Good stuff. Turning back to your time at Aberdeen, if we can, um, just yeah. to round things off. You know, were you looking back now on, on your career, how beneficial do you think that your spell in Scotland was in terms of your overall kind of career progression, do you think? That kind of put my name on the map more in England, I, I feel, because obviously the TV games, the size of the games that we was playing and obviously the manager was a big help. Obviously, he, he obviously managed in England before, but obviously didn't go to how he wanted it to go. And yeah, he just, he just, I think he just, he understood me and he was just the right manager I needed at, at that time to to help me kind of kickstart my career and, and to give me that confidence and that belief that I can play at a high level. And yeah, for me, it was the perfect timing to go to Aberdeen and I'm so glad I did. I wish I stayed to the end of the season. And, and saw it out because I'd, um, I thought that I would have benefited even even further from with the manager and obviously and Doc and all the other people at the club and yeah I just really enjoyed my time in Scotland and obviously in Aberdeen and yeah the city was just was really good to me. If we focus just kind of solely on an Aberdeen FC um, itself, would you recommend it to any young player in England coming through the ranks that this is a good place to come and and learn the game? Yeah, I've always I've always said it. Any team I've been to where there's players, young good uh, players that need to hit games, I've always said, you know what, try and get to Scotland. Try and if you can, Aberdeen's a lovely like because Aberdeen's a city. Like, it's the, I think for me, for me, it's like a it's a great city because obviously you can fly back to London and stuff like that, but it's like a mini London. So you've got everything you will need in the city. You can just concentrate on your football. Obviously, the weather's not great, but it's yeah, it's a great place to play football and and it's a great place to learn as well because there's so much exposure there. But players don't understand it because they they they're nice and comfortable and to go all the way up to Scotland, it's it's like oh, it's, it's like kind of like a hardship. But the players that really want to 
kick on and, and freely want to learn from the game, they will try it, I feel. And yeah, I think that once players go there, they understand. But it's just getting the players to go and getting the players to kind of understand that sometimes you need to come out your comfort zone to then kick on. It's funny you say that because that's the exact same that James Madison said and he's had a pretty successful career after Aberdeen as well. Yeah, he's not bad yet. Listen, Michael, we... We'll round things off here. We thank you so much for your time. We know that you're a very, very busy man playing in the championship. We'll ask you one final question. It's the question we ask all of our guests at the end of the interview. What does Aberdeen Football Club mean to Michael Hector? What does it mean? That is a very tough question. It, it gave me a chance to play, obviously, in Scotland, to, to obviously the confidence for me to play or, Obviously, what some of my biggest games I've played in up until that point, the, the play obviously your home games in a historical stadium. So, yeah, it was just for me, it just gave me that belief that I can play in big crowds at, at a high level and that confidence for me to now kick on. And obviously, it showed to me that obviously playing on TV games and stuff like that, yeah, I can do it. And that's what it means to me that it gave me that chance in football to then make my goal to then play for Reading. So I'm always going to be grateful to, to Aberdeen. It gave you that chance and it's, and you certainly took it. Thank you. Michael Hector, top man. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the ABZ Football Podcast. All the best to you and to Fulham for the rest of the season. Uh, wish you all the best and try to get back up to the Premier League and hopefully uh, to you and yours, have a good Christmas and a, and a happy new year. Thank you. Merry, have a good Christmas and a happy new year. Stand free. <laughs> and so that wraps up this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Thanks for joining us. And please remember to like, subscribe, follow, whatever on your podcast player of choice. And our thanks to Tom Watt for making it two out of two on the ABZ FP. Thanks for joining us, mate. Thanks very much. Another solid 90 under my belt. Look forward to the next one. Match fitness is really getting there now, so it's all good. Like it. It's like it's like a young David Bates. <laughs> but less ginger. <laughs> An old, an old David Bates. <laughs> <laughs> Join us next week for episode 27, where we'll review our game against New Co Rangers and preview our doubleheader against Edinburgh City in the Scottish Cup and our second trip to Paisley this season in the company of St Mirren fan Kenny Leckie. Join us then. Stand free. This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you by Wowsy Aberdeen, your local independent family business based in St Andrews Street. An unrivaled choice for your sweet tooth needs with a huge selection of import sodas to choose from. It's got to be Wowsy. Root beer, Mountain Dew, Monster Energy and Japanese Ramune to name a few. You'll have a great day when you're on your way to Wowsy Aberdeen. Shop online at www.wowsy.com.